The Bob Murphy Show, episode 285. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy well 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 everybody you're in for a treat this is going to be a long episode the backstory here is Scott Horton recently released a monumental, mammoth, gargantuan episode clocking in at almost 13 hours. Episode's name of the reward. It was a production where he had two experts on what happened at Waco with him, and they just sat there going through reams of material and discussing every element of what happened at Waco, starting from giving the the background of, you know, how the Branch Davidians broke off from the Seventh-day Adventists and what David Koresh and why people followed him. And it wasn't, he wasn't claiming to be Jesus. It was more nuanced and da, da, da. Okay. And, he, and they bring in clips from genuine Old Testament scholars to explain that, well, no, Koresh actually knows these certain books of the Bible or these portions of them extremely well. And this was an interesting take he had, and we can see why people were uh, drawn to him. And so from that stuff all the way up through analyzing the FLIR footage, analyzing the trial afterward, interspersed with Scott's interviews with various key players, including one of the survivors, you know, an actual Branch Davidian who wasn't there when the siege occurred. And so he survived. Just a monumental thing that I... I knew a decent amount about Waco going into it. And I, it was the kind of thing where I was just driving around listening to in the car and just coming up with reasons that, Oh no, I, I need to still drive some more or oh, I gotta go to the store. Oh, I gotta go to <laughs> because I didn't want it to, I didn't want to stop listening. All right. So on the other hand, I knew well, gee, the thing is almost 13 hours. A lot of people just aren't even going to give it a chance or they're not going to listen to the whole thing. And so what I'm doing in this episode of the Bob Murphy show is somewhat analogous to what I did with the book Choice, where you've got Mises' magnum opus, Human Action, and I distilled that down into 300-some-odd pages that someone with no prior background in economics would be able to understand. And that's what I'm trying to do here is I don't want this to be a substitute for you going and listening to the longer piece, but I'm trying to distill the essentials and make sure that you understand the significance because... As we all know, we love Scott, but sometimes he can uh, assume that the listener has a more comprehensive background than the listener may in fact have. And so I just make sure anytime Scott says something that I realize, uh, some people might not know what you meant there, Scott, and back up. But wait, who is that person and what's the connection? Okay. Now, before we dive in, let me make a pitch on Scott's behalf for the Libertarian Institute. So they are in the midst of a fundraiser they don't do this often, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, they do need to occasionally pass the hat around. And so I would like to encourage you, if you haven't done so, I'm even going to say if you had to choose between making a donation to me and giving one to Scott, give it to Scott on this time. 
next time you are faced with that dilemma, go with me. But right now, because it really is, the reason we're doing this show is just to highlight the work that the Libertarian Institute did with this mammoth episode. And when you, you know, if you do go click through and listen to it when you get a chance, high production quality, it's great stuff that they did there. A little bit more about the Libertarian Institute. So Scott's the director of it. It features works from people like Sheldon Richmond, Jim Bovard, Lori Calhoun, and Ted Galen Carpenter, who was formerly at Cato and then got on sour terms with them because of his anti-war views. They also have younger up-and-coming people like Keith Knight. And also they not only write material, but have their own podcasts. And so they're midst of their summer fundraiser. And I would encourage you to go to libertarianinstitute.org to make a donation. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Scott Horton talking about his monumental achievement, the Waco tragedy. Scott, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. Great to be with you. By the way, I think for a while, the first one I did with you, first interview on this show was like one of the most highly downloaded ones. I think once COVID stuff hit, some of those broke the record, but I think you for a while had the biggest one. You got a big fan base. I think that was on Waco too, wasn't it? You know what? I think it was. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so the stage here is, for one thing, you know, why are you and I talking about Waco? I'll tell my quick story. This is what radicalized me in the sense. So I was a libertarian. I believed in free market economics, but I actually, there was a period, you know, when I was like in high school, younger, when I just thought, oh, wow, those Congress people, they must not have learned economics. They think by raising the minimum wage, they're helping poor people, but actually they're not. And that's how naive I was. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the U.S. government would deliberately in our day and age massacre a bunch of women and children, like I just, and then see, and then it was the documentary Waco Rules of Engagement watching that. I was like, oh, wow, they really did just kill those people and they're covering, wow. And that really opened it. And my dad too, like, cause he was a conservative right winger and he didn't like Bill Clinton, obviously. And he came in and he was looking at some of it. And it, when we get to the part, maybe I'll try to remember to say it, it had to do with the helicopter. I think it was the door. I think that might've been the thing that my dad just, I was like, just laughing. I was like, oh man, and he walked <laughs> But so this is really like, you know, flip from a wow, the government is bumbling and inefficient to these guys are killers. And also I remember you said something about the grocery store because I this was going down. I was working in a grocery store and the manager, he was a few years older than me and we're stocking yogurt or something in the dairy case. And he's like, what do you think? Oh, yeah. And his big deal was and this is the way the media is presented. Like, well, yeah, I mean, they're abusing children in there. I, I said they just send it in. I don't know if he said send tanks in or send the Marines in or something, but it was definitely like, what are we screwing around for? There's a bunch of crazy people in here. And yeah, the aftermath was not at all. Wow. They torched those people. It was, these people are crazy and it's too bad we couldn't rescue those kids in time. Yeah. Look, you and me and a lot of other people too looked at that. I mean, they said it was a suicide like Jim Jones, but come on, these people really put gasoline all over their own children and set them on fire, man. You want me to believe that? You won't show me the back of the house. But meanwhile, I know already how much the cops hated these people and wanted to bring this thing to an end. And I have the clips where Bob Ricks says, look, this thing had to come to a natural conclusion at some point. This kind of thing. That's the way they thought about it. This can only go on so long and we've decided we're out of patience and we're doing it. But then you're telling me it's a suicide. And when I know how cops are anyway, 
Now you're talking about people who were accused of being cop killers. Oh, they lured the poor ATF into an ambush and slaughtered the innocent lambs. And so these are the worst felons in America, all of them. And oh yeah, but no, they killed themselves. The cops would, they swear they didn't fire a single shot on April 19th. And just as a 16 year old kid, I knew that they're lying. I knew yep. that they're murderers. I knew that they murdered those people. And then when rules of engagement came out, in 97, it was just like, yeah, told you, damn, way worse than I could have ever thought as far as, well, I don't know about that, but as bad as the worst accusations against them, it was true what the government did to those people. Okay, so for folks who are new to you can, and we might have some younger listeners, Scott, so I think, why don't we first, so the context here is, I listened to your, it was 12, 12-ish hours, just tour 13. de force interview that you had done or show, you had two guests. So can you just explain a little bit of the context like of who those two guests were? Because what this is, I'm doing right now on the Bob Murphy Show, folks, is I'm trying to give you a Cliff's Notes version. But just like when I wrote Choice, I didn't want to say, don't go read Human Action. It was to say, this is why you should go read Human Action. So here, this is why I'm trying to give you some of the highlights. You should go listen to this amazing production that Scott put out. And obviously, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 285, everybody, to get all the links for this stuff. So Scott, though, can you just explain like who those two guests were and like what we've just been referring to Waco rules of engagement, what do people don't know what we're talking about? Can you just kind of explain sure. a little of the context? Yeah. So, well, it's the 30th anniversary this year and the war party put out a bunch of propaganda about the poor little ATF and that kind of thing. And so I was already planning on doing a podcast. I was going to have a friend kind of interview me for a couple hours about it, maybe. I always do a Waco show every year, pretty much. And I thought, well, we'll really go for it this time. I had a friend of mine said, well, I got time off at the end of the year here, man. Let me like help produce the thing and work on it. Some writing a book about the Russia war thing. So I basically wrote up an outline in Google Docs. Like, here's the story. And then I told my guy, you fill it in with all these details and set him to work reading books and all kinds of things and taking notes. And we worked together on it mostly. It's James Hill is his fake name who... I credit with doing most of the work mm. and preparing that outline for me. And then what happened was Dan Gifford called me. And Dan Gifford is the producer of the documentary from 1997, Waco, The Rules of Engagement. The director, the main guy, Mike McNulty, is dead now. But Gifford called me and he said, Scott, they're putting out all this stuff about how, oh, it was a suicide and mistakes were made, but not by me and all this kind of whitewashed stuff. And we're not going to let them do that, are we? And I said, no, Dan, actually, we're not. And now instead of my friend interviewing me or maybe me just sitting there interviewing myself for a couple hours, I'll tell you what's going to happen now. I'm going to interview you. And it'll be a pseudo expert who's like pretty much qualified to interview himself, actually interviewing guys who are a guy who's even better than him mm -hmm. on all this. And then I realized April 19th is coming up. I really wanted to talk with Paul Fatta, the surviving Branch Davidi, and I had some really crucial questions to put to him. And so I decided instead of getting it all done and rushing and having it done by the 19th, I would go up to Waco on the 19th and interview Paul Fatta, which I did. And, and then that was lucky because then I interviewed also James Tabor, the religious expert from the University of North Carolina, and also David Thibodeau, the surviving Branch Davidian again, and got all this extra material. And then I went to Los Angeles, which is where Dan Gifford lives, mm -hmm. and rented an Airbnb for a few days. And we sat down, him, and then there's a guy named David Hardy, 
And I had asked David Hardy if he was going to go to Waco for the anniversary. He said, oh, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, maybe I should. And then I said, no, you know what? I got a better idea. How about hold that? You go to LA too. I'll fly you to LA. I got my own little institute now, you know? Oh, yeah. I'll fly you to LA and get you a hotel room and we'll all meet there and I'm going to interview you and Dan Gifford together. And who is David Hardy? Yeah, David Hardy, the book is called, This Is Not an Assault, Penetrating the Web of Lies Surrounding the Waco Incident. So I, I brought Dave to LA and I went out there and we sat down for two full days and a morning and went through the whole damn story. And I just got them prepared that, look, guys, we're going to do the very long form comprehensive version of this, which means we're going to talk about all the prehistory of the Davidians, mm -hmm. all the accusations against David Koresh and everything under the sun. But as I say in the introduction to the piece, it's called the Waco Tragedy, if people want to look it up. As I say in the intro, look, the government killed those people. And that's what we're doing here is we're here to prevent them from putting this fake whitewash history out as the official history. And so that's the bottom line. But I want to do its 30-year anniversary. I want to do the comprehensive case and really tell the story. And then they were both very generous with their time. They understood exactly what I was going for with that mm -hmm. and played along basically. And we just went through the whole story and I tried to bounce questions off of the two of them as best as I could for adding what they knew to the story as we kind of went through and then playing clips of James Tabor and Paul Fatta and Fleer experts and everything I had, basically clips from the movies Mike McNulty had a sequel, which Gifford actually didn't participate in because they had some differences. But the sequel is called Waco, A New Revelation. And that one has clearer flare footage in it and all kinds of stuff like that. So, so that was the deal. And then so it, the whole thing ended up like 16 and a half hours and I edited it down to 13 is the final. Okay, great. There. And yeah, I hope people really get something out of it. I actually messed around and did a funny little, uh, I don't know how funny it was, but I did a little stand-up comedy thing with Robbie Bernstein in Austin last night. And we did a little podcast afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I forgot the context, but it came up. And I asked the audience, did anybody here hear that? And they were like, yeah. So like, that was Robbie's audience. They were my audience. They were Robbie's right, audience. Right. And they had heard it. So, you know, I was happy to hear that. People decided that like, ah, oh, geez, 13 hours on a gulp. And then they went ahead and took the dive. Yeah, so. I would just encourage you like it, Listen to it in your cars. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I get you're not just going to sit there in your house staring at your computer or something. But I mean, because it was the kind of thing, Scott, like, well, you know, if you're listening to a good audiobook on a road trip, you can't wait to get back in the car. Like, I was coming up with right. excuses for why I need to be driving around more when I was listening to your thing because it was great. I was like, oh, wow, this is a good part. I got to hear what happens over here. So I'm really happy to hear that, man. I'm really happy to hear that. I, I just hate these government so much, dude. Sorry, you didn't bleep that. I just hate them and I want everybody else to hate them as much as I do. It's as simple as that. I can't stand the idea that they get to say that, oh, yeah, no, here's what happened at Waco. Eight, when the Branch Davidians raided the ATF and killed four of them. Like, yeah, no, that ain't how I remember it. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's the point of doing this is partly in case you're like I used to be, I guess, Scott, you that, you know, like, oh, wow, the government, they're inefficient or whatever, but then realizing, oh, no, it's a lot worse than that and that, and it's not even just, oh, mistakes were made, but like they actively, and we, the thing with this too is there's, we have receipts, as the kids say. So, you know, we'll, yeah. and we'll play some of that for this Bob Murphy show episode, of course, but for, to see just how overwhelming the case is that, yes, they did this, it was intentional, and then they covered it up and just lying 
from the moment they woke up in the morning till they went to bed at night, the people involved with this on the government side. Okay, so why don't we just real quickly, just big picture, can you give Scott just a summary, like a timeline that yeah. that everybody would agree to? Well, you know, whether it was Jim yeah. Kavanaugh or David Koresh, that they would all say, yeah, what Scott just said, you know, so let's not be controversial right now just to give people in case they don't, really don't know what we're talking about the framework just of the events so people have the general outline. Okay, so there's a, this religious sect living in Northeast Waco or kind of right outside the outskirts of Northeast Waco, Texas, which is halfway between Austin and Dallas. And it was a religious group that had been in the Waco area for since the 1930s, I believe, off and on, and had been out at that property, I believe, for 25 years, something like that. The group was led by a guy named Vernon Howell, who called himself David Koresh. And he was not just their minister. He, it, the thing was like, you know, on a scale of one to Jim Jones, it was like a hot seven. Like it was a pretty culty group with their leader demanding all kinds of power and authority over them beyond what you would consider to be reasonable. And including, might as well get into it, yes, having sex with his followers, children, their daughters, and their wives. So the ATF, they had a problem, which was they had been exposed on 60 Minutes for being a bunch of very serious racists, like selling N-word hunting licenses at their at their Jubilee party and all of this stuff. Waving the Confederate flag around, not like the Duke boys and the General Lee, but more like the Ku Klux Klan. Like that really is who they are. They're kind of moonshiners. Well, anti-moonshiners, right? They're government revenuers, but mm -hmm. they're like Southern boys. And one of the things that they hated about David Koresh and the Davidians was that they had blacks in there. But that was one of the things that was, they were in trouble for. And then also, even though it was the federal marshals that killed Sammy Weaver, and it was the FBI hostage rescue team that killed Vicki Weaver, the ATF were the ones who had set up Randy Weaver in the first place on this bogus rap in order to try to coerce him into becoming an informant that led to the entire Rand Ruby Ridge disaster of the summer of 1992. So, hey, just now, to make sure, again, so folks, what Scott's saying, before the government, federal government gets involved with Waco, the ATF has this pre-existing black eye from yeah. the, what did you say, CBS? Is that what it was? Where they aired it? Yes, yeah, 60 Minutes. Or 60 Minutes, it. sorry. Okay, yeah, I'll just... Well, yeah, which is CBS News. Oh, it is? Okay, um, good. <laughs> yeah. And the Ruby Ridge, it was a separate disaster. Exactly. Where some lady's like holding her kid and gets shot by right. government agents. I'm sorry, stuff. I kind of summed that up like everybody already knows <laughs> yeah. it. Ruby Ridge was this guy... Randy Weaver, who lived with his family out in Idaho, out in the country. They called him white separatist Randy Weaver, which he really was. But then again, he worked for a black guy at the local garage in town. And so like he wasn't, he wasn't like a hateful guy. He was just a separatist, part of his religious beliefs, very Old Testament stuff. But anyway, there are a lot of Aryan nations and stuff fled the South and moved out to the Northwest. And the ATF, he knew some guys in the Aryan nation and the ATF entrapped him and just pressured and pressured him into cutting off the barrels of a couple of shotguns too short. And then they went, aha, gotcha. Now we got you on some federal charges and we're going to, we demand that you become an informant for us. And he told them to go to hell. So then they deliberately sent him the wrong court date, or I don't know deliberately, but they sent him the wrong court date. He shows up, they tell him, this is not the right date, leave. So he leaves and he doesn't come back the next time that they call him down for his court date. So now I go, oh, you got a federal warrant. He lives on this hill out in the country, you know, in the woods. And the federal marshals... And he's his former military, right? 
Yes, he's a former Green Beret. Okay. So federal marshals come and the dog catches their scent and runs after him. The son is 14 years old, looks like he's 12. He's a young boy and he's with the family friend and the cops shoot the dog. Mm -hmm. And so the son fires basically wildly at them and the cops open fire and they shoot the kid in and the back. And when you say cops here, are, are they ATF or are they? Federal marshals. Okay. Federal marshals who were there setting up surveillance, preparing to serve a warrant. Okay. So they're working for the judiciary, these cops. So, of course, they call it a murder and all of this. They don't say, oops, we screwed up and fired shots in anger at this family. And the boy returned fire. So then we killed him right there. And they shot him in the back when he was running away. He was no longer presenting a threat at the time that they killed him. I believe they wounded the family friend. But anyway, so the whole story was, oh, white separatist kills cops, blah, blah. Oh, and one of the cops did get killed. And although Alan Bach, the great Alan Bach from antiwar.com, I know you wanted an overview, sorry. <laughs> the great Alan Bach from antiwar.com shows in his book, Ambush at Ruby Ridge, that, and he was from the Orange County Register, Wonderful guy, wonderful journalist. And he showed it was very likely that one of the marshals shot the other and killed him accidentally, friendly fire, while they were trying to kill the boy. So that was what started. Then the FBI comes, they lay siege to the place, and the FBI sniper, Lon Horiuchi, shoots the wife in the throat, as you said, as she held her infant daughter in her arms, opening the door for the husband to come back in the house on some rules of engagement that said shoot to kill all fighting age males on the property, which is completely illegal. So they look terrible, even though, again, Marshall shot the boy, FBI shot the wife. The whole thing was the ATF set up in the first place. So among the fraternity of federal police agencies, they were the ones who took the rap and had this bad reputation. Mm -hmm. Then you got Bill and Hillary Clinton got elected in November of 1992 and with Al Gore. And remember, Al Gore promised reinventing government. We're going to get rid of waste, fraud, and abuse and all of this stuff. Well, one of his proposals was maybe we don't need the ATF anymore, or maybe we'll take them away from Treasury and fold them into the Justice Department. Well, they're already the redheaded stepchild compared to the FBI and Justice. But now you're going to take them away from Treasury and put them under the FBI, basically, at Justice? For, from a bureaucratic point of view, this is absolute DEFCON 1, right? For them protecting their own agency and their job. So they need a public relations stunt, Bob. They got, and people, you know, you talk about Actually, all this. Actually, can I stop it? So, yeah, I realize. So, folks, BATF is Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And that's mm -hmm. why it was with Treasury, because it was originally like collecting like taxes and duties and stuff, right? right? And, mm -hmm. and that's why they were with Reaver. Like they are also are the ones that if you're like selling sawed off shotguns or something, that's their jurisdiction. Like, cause you're breaking federal gun laws. I mean, I guess. I mean, I, 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 I don't think you would normally, you would normally think that that would be a job for the FBI. Right. It seems like they can extend their jurisdiction that far if they're trying to entrap some guy, but is that their normal job? No, I don't think so. Well, so when, mm -hmm. when they're Bureau of Tobacco and Fire, the firearms means like they're just supposed to collect revenue related to firearms. Yeah, yeah, well, and I guess, I mean, I think overall their jurisdiction is large-scale trade in these things. Okay. Right? Rather than some guy cuts the end off a barrel. That's, that I think is probably a job for local cops, something like that. Typically, their job is who's transporting black market alcohol, yeah. tobacco, and firearms right, right. and not paying their taxes on it and that kind of stuff, right? right? Okay. Okay. So, 
you think about all the PC woke times of recently, that's how it was in the very early Bill Clinton years before Rush Limbaugh really made his big kind of counter strike for the right. Man, it was all Captain Planet and recycling yeah. and gays in the military. And Hillary Clinton is overthrowing the patriarchy. She's the co-president mm -hmm. of the country. They called her Billary. And that wasn't even an insult. There are people who like, this is great that we're kind of electing both of these people together. That was like the attitude of that time. Mm -hmm. Was this, you know, everybody recycle and all this crap, like to the nth degree. So ATF, they're a bunch of right-wing rednecks. They're far to the right of the Branch Davidians. As I said, they're like avowed white supremacists. It's one of the reasons they hate Koresh. But they know they got to suck up to these damn liberals. So they look for some rednecks to target. They look for a guy with a mullet and a Trans Am that they can make an example out of. And then serendipity for them was the UPS man called the cops on the Branch Davidians for having dummy grenades. And the thing is, they weren't making real grenades out of them. They were making novelty items that you sell at the flea market where it says, oh, complaint department, take a number. But you have to pull the ring out of the grenade, mm -hmm. the pin out of the grenade to take a number. Like, this is just a joke. But the UPS guy saw that and called the cops. And the cops called the ATF. And so that they went, oh, great. What an opportunity. This huge house full of these weird rednecks with guns. We're going to go beat the hell out of them in front of the Democrats. And they had an appropriations hearing literally two weeks later, Bob. As Dave Hardy said, he was a former federal cop at the Interior Department. And he says, whenever anything big happens anywhere, the first thing I always ask is, how far away was their appropriations hearing? And because he knows that's how it works, because that used to be his job was, well, we don't want to do it yet. We still want the excitement up by the time of the hearing. So we're going to put it off six weeks, boss. This kind of thing. That's how they do it. So that was why they targeted the Davidians. And even though as is cliche now, and I'm so glad that this hey, is just, true. Hang on. So let me make sure I get, I thought you were, at first I thought you meant they had to go get funding for the Waco raid, but you mean the other way around that they wanted oh. to make sure the raid happened right at the time when they that's were right. going to be asking Congress for more money for their department period. That's right, okay, to okay. impress them. Yeah, so to have a good little feather in their cap right as they go in to get called into the principal's office and get their right. report card. Okay. Exactly right, exactly right. So now everybody knows that they could have got Koresh jogging. They could have got him at Walmart. Everybody knows that. Like everybody's mom and dad, everybody's heard that. That's a cliche now in society. Everybody knows. When I post anything about Waco, immediately people say in the responses, they could have arrested that guy anytime. Well, that's true. That is absolutely right. And in fact, he had invited them out. And they didn't want that. They wanted their stunt. So they and, and, can I say, so let, can yeah. we pull back and just do the quick timeline? And then I right. want to go in. So yeah. then I'll, I'll fast forward now. So yeah. they raided the place on February 28th on mm -hmm. a Sunday morning. Yep. Six Davidians were killed for ATF. Then they refused to come out. Koresh said God told them not to come out. So they, the FBI came and laid siege to the place for 51 days. And then on April the 19th, they started with a gas attack and eventually machine gunned and burned the people all to death and called it a suicide. And then they launched a massive cover-up, a bogus trial, and including a fake blue ribbon panel investigation in 1999 and the rest to gaslight us all and tell us, we're supposed to believe them instead of our own lion eyes, as they did. And they, and most notably, Bob, in the big picture, this is the thing that people really need to know, is that 
the government and the media absolutely succeeded in getting all the men and women at your grocery store and mine to want those people dead. They turned this little piece of property a hundred miles from my front door in the middle of central Texas into a foreign nation. And they turned David Koresh into a foreign military dictator in mirrored sunglasses. And then they laid siege to the place. And then they sent in the Delta Force and they murdered everybody. They killed them. And they said, look, this guy's crazy. So you can't negotiate with him. He's got illegal weapons, which means, oh, he's such a danger to everyone around. And he's bad to his own people. And we got to go in there and save him. Well, that's the exact same rap they gave us exactly 10 years later about why they needed to invade Iraq. Mm. Yep. It's the exact same thing as the lies to start Iraq War II. That's all Waco was. It was Iraq War II writ small. And it was based on, on soil. much dishonesty. Yeah, it, it amazing, the amazing thing is on U.S. soil, too. Like, just amazing. On U.S. soil. Yeah. Hey, let, let me mention, because sometimes people say, What's the, obviously, it's not that killing non-U.S. people is okay or is less of a moral outrage. It's just in terms of the American jurisprudence and all the stuff they swear to and everything, it's extra hypocritical when they do all this stuff on U.S. soil to U.S. citizens. But And look, they totally militarize it. They said... Koresh is the commander. Steve Schneider is his lieutenant. And this house is a compound. compound Even though a compound right. has a definition, right? A compound means there's a wall and there are separate buildings. Well, there's no wall and there are no separate buildings. It's not a compound, right? It's not. It was like they a, just a, lodged. You just it go, was a oh, church, compound. right? The bunker. They talked about that pantry. They called it the bunker because it was the one concrete room, the <laughs> storm shelter. They live out on the prairie. And so they pretended that this was a military situation. And the thing is, Bob, again, the people of the country, they loved it, dude. They wanted to get involved. It's just like Operation Yellow Ribbon in 1991 with Desert Storm. It was fun. It was an event. It was like when Barack Obama ran for president. It's like a public relations campaign just to the absolute nth degree. It's almost like a fad. Like the famous pop star that all the teenage girls love this year or whatever. It was like, this is a thing that we're all doing together for fun. Mm -hmm. You know, like when there's a big new game show, Dancing with the Stars, and it gets like huge ratings and everybody's right, watching right. it kind of at the same time, primetime TV together or whatever. This is something we're all doing together. Killing the Branch Davidians. And it was the tank attack and the, after the fire, after they were killed, the USA Today poll said 93% approved the tank attack. And wow. they did. I don't know if it was really 93%. Let's say it was 83. Mm -hmm. They did. They loved it. They loved it. They wanted those people dead so bad, as bad as the FBI did. And people try to lie and go, oh, no, that was liberals, not the right wing. Lie. It was the far right wing, the patriot movement and the militias and... Of course, libertarians, not that we're far right, but the libertarian movement, but the absolute bulk, the 90% of the conservative movement was law and order led by Rush Limbaugh. How dare those people thumb their nose at law enforcement? They won't come out. They deserve to die. That was the unanimous opinion of most people listening to this show right now who were alive back then, if they'll admit it to themselves. That's the truth. It worked. They cast their spell through the TV news and the people felt for it. It's like they always do. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I say, I, I do remember at the time that the guy I was working with at the grocery store was definitely, well, you know, I, 
In other words, like we're trying to play it nice. This is during the siege, folks. You know what it is? Yeah, and Scott right. say like it was just that was the news item, and that's what people were talking. It's like if there was a new mini series on her. Oh, did you see the latest episode? Oh, yeah, I'm tuning in. Like it was. What do you think about it? What do you think? As everyone's talking about, and yeah, the chatter was like, yeah, well, we're trying to be nice here. We're giving them a chance. They're not coming out, so I guess in yep. in there. So before we get further into this, and obviously, as people can guess, Scott and I are not going to have nice things to say about the FBI or the ATF here. But I do appreciate your intellectual honesty that you did. You're pretty for, and, and you really were adamant in the conversation with Dan and David that let's not whitewash. Koresh was doing some creepy stuff with underage girls. Like, let's just not. Yeah. And for a long time, that was not clear to me. It was clear that that was the accusation. Right. The local police, whose actual jurisdiction that is, the Child Protective Services came out there and they found no evidence of that. And I have the audio, it's in the movie, where the local sheriff says, we investigated this, we had no proof. There was a guy from Australia who said this was true. There was another family that had said this was true. But we just had no evidence. We had no case to prosecute here and no grounds to remove the kids. And the kids, according to the CPS who interviewed the children, that these are not abused children. These are very, like, well-raised, well-behaved, nice, and well-adjusted children from loving families who... A CPS lady who's experienced can tell you real quick if somebody's raised being abused by their mom's boyfriend or whether they come from a loving household pretty quickly. And they said, no, these kids are okay. And people need to know that the ATF has no jurisdiction over this whatsoever. And they just padded their warrant with all these accusations just mm -hmm. to like make it sound good. But they had no jurisdiction. And the national government has no jurisdiction whatsoever unless they're transporting people across state lines or something like that, which has nothing to do with this story, right? So in a way, like, yes, it is not in a way. Yes, it is true, but in a way, it's completely beside the point, right? It's a red herring used as like public relations spin against the Davidians. And people say, I see this on Twitter, oh, it was a child rape cult and whatever. No, that's just not true. Like, yes, this guy, Koresh, absolutely was guilty of statutory rape. And you could even say pedophilia. Like some of these girls were even as young as 11 and 12 years old, was as low as he was going, which is, according to David Thibodeau, the surviving branch civilian, not according to the police, according to David Thibodeau, at least 12 years old. So this is absolutely criminal behavior that he was getting away with there. But it wasn't every child in the place and it wasn't like that was the purpose of the whole group and that's what everyone was there for. Like there's this, I don't know that much about it, but there's that weird cult in, that weird sex cult in New York with the NXIVM right, or right. whatever the mm -hmm. hell it is up there, you know? This is not that. They try to say that, but it's essentially, and again, as you see in the knee-jerk responses, it's like, that guy was a bad guy and you're on the side. You're defending a guy who did these terrible things. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, look, I'm not sitting here like going, well, his character was very complicated and you should sympathize right. with him over this, that, whatever. That's not the argument. The argument is just to try to get to the, first of all, the truth of who those people were and what they were there for and all of that. And just like honesty, like just as a, the debt that we owe to history is to tell the truth. And that I think it, to prove as you said, the intellectual honesty that like, there's no reason to pick a side and lie for that side. You know what I mean? The point of the whole Waco story is that the truth is terrible. Not my side of the story is terrible. Right. Right. right? It, you, what happened to these people was wrong. And I'm sure that the widely rumored and 
very sensationally reported in the local newspaper right before the raid. Those accusations did help to color everybody's view of what was going on there, where in the media and in the minds of the cops, this was like the Charlie Manson cult, right? right. There's not a single redeeming quality for any single person in there. They are all, if they are not raping children, they are co-conspirators in it. And if they didn't kill a cop, they are, they must have handed a rifle to somebody who did. And these, all of them are as collectively guilty as can be. And that was the role that the child abuse accusations played in the situation. You had a bunch of women, children, elderly people. They were all good, good people. They had different beliefs from others. Uh, different beliefs than I have, or maybe different beliefs than you have in their way of life, and especially in their religious beliefs. But basically, they were good people. I was around them quite a lot. They were always nice, mannerly. They minded their own business. They, they were never overbearing. They were always clean and courteous. I liked them. But to explain to people what it was, this group is a break off of the Seventh-day Adventists. And I have an extended interview in featured in the tragedy of the Waco tragedy with James Tabor explaining where they come from. And it's a break off of a break off of a break off of the Seventh-day Adventists with strong emphasis on the seven seals, the book of Nahum and the book of Daniel and the coming of revelations and the end of the world. And this, a lot of this stuff is especially very popular in the 1990s. But of course, Koresh, separate from a lot of these Protestant ministers, he's the one who knows the deal. He's the Lamb of God described in Revelation who's there to unlock the seals. And because he's such a savant with his understanding of the seals, he must be the prophet foretold in the book. Now, this is part of the excuse for killing him too, was that he said he was Jesus. And I remember, I, was, I can see, still see the lady's face at the grocery store telling me, he said he was Jesus. I say they go in there and get him. And then I said, yeah, they should nail him to a tree. That'll show him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, <laughs> people are just crazy. But then that wasn't really true, right? They were Christians. They worshiped Jesus of Nazareth. They, he did not say that he was Jesus. He said that he was the sinful Messiah, which was this so-called lamb of God who is described in the Bible as not being a sinless angel like Jesus Christ, but instead being a regular man guilty of sin, just like Abraham and Moses and Solomon and David and whoever before him in that line of men, but who are prophets, who has the divine key, this, that. So he didn't say he was Jesus, but he did say he was the Lamb of God. And he did say, well, you know, it says in the Bible here, I have to create a ruling council of 24 children to take over the world when Jesus comes back. So I'm going to need your daughter and your wife, pal. And they were giving into that. And look, you can't crawl in somebody's head. My presumption is that that is just absolute cynical exploitation. You know, if somebody wants to say that, oh, no, he really believed his own BS on that. Well, I don't know. Maybe he did. Mm -hmm. I did appreciate that element that, Scott, you spent a while in the beginning of that 12, 13-hour marathon. Just, I guess, Tabor was the religious expert that you had on just going yeah. through. So I don't think we should get in too much more here, but I just point to people, like, especially if you're a Bible-believing Christian, it's fascinating to hear 
because he wasn't just some kook saying crazy stuff like Scott has, you know, religious experts, Old Testament scholars and stuff saying like, oh, wow, the way he spoke about these, like he really had a command of a certain subset of the literature. In fact, Tabor says, Tabor made it clear, you know, he's a scholar. He's like, you know, doesn't believe in any of this stuff. Right. But the question was like, how well did Koresh really know this stuff? He's just fooling some bumpkins or what's going on here kind of thing. And he goes, oh, no, this, the guy was very well versed. He said, he had this whole rap about the book of Isaiah that from chapter this to chapter that is one period of time. And then from chapter this to chapter that is this whole separate section. And he goes, man, I had never really looked at it that way, but he makes a really good point there. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And he said, not bragging, but he was like, I'm sorry, I am among the premier book of Isaiah scholars on the planet Earth. And I'm telling you, I learned a thing from this guy about it. So it wasn't that, you know, he like agreed with him, believed right, in right, him, right. looked up to him or anything like that. But he could just say that it was true, as many of the Davidians had witnessed, that Koresh would put religious scholars to shame. And he would go, yeah, well, what about this and this and this? And they would go, ah, I have no idea. And you go, all right, then. Well, you don't know what you're talking about then. And so he did. We had people drop out of PhD studies in seminary school to come and live in this clapboard giant shack, basically, out in the countryside to listen to this guy. There was something compelling enough about him for serious believers and for scholars separately who were more objective, like, to studying religion. We're still like, man, this guy's really an expert. Yeah. So again, folks, it's what he was saying. Obviously, I don't believe, like, I don't think that he was a problem even for other things. He didn't fulfill some of the things that he would have had to for his, <laughs> his narrative to be true. But yeah, but he wasn't claiming to be Jesus. It was a more nuanced thing. But yes, as Scott said, what he was claiming to be then was the means by which he would tell the other members, you know, hey, I'm going to take your young daughter as one of my, I don't know if he called them wives or what, but so that's yeah. anyway. Yeah, he did. He married them. Okay. He, okay. Yeah. And to be specific for people who want to check me on that, because I know that defenders of the Davidians will say that's all lies, but it's really not. And David Thibodeau was testifies, and it's in his book. It used to be called A Place Called Waco. It's now called Waco, A Survivor Story. Yeah, they made the good TV movie on Netflix a couple of years ago about it. And I've known David Thibodeau for a very long time. I've talked to him many times over the last 25 years, 30 years. I knew him back in the 1990s. He's one of the survivors who survived the fire. How old was he when that went down? Roughly? Was he a kid or was he a man? 20s? Okay. Yeah, mid-20s. Okay. He's the guy in Rules of Engagement with the long hair who goes, I'm a drummer. And man, it was loud. Remember that? (laughs) I think so. Yeah. 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 That's Thibodeau. And he writes in his book, he names names. His Perry Jones's daughters, Clive Doyle's daughters, and et cetera. And he names their names in Mm -hmm. there. And so... There was this girl who had been brought out by Tom Lantos, the guy that perpetrated the babies and incubators hoax to get us into Iraq War One. That guy had arranged a hearing with this girl named Carrie Jewell, who had claimed that she had been molested by Koresh. And then that apparently her mother and grandmother disputed that. And so she wasn't even in town at the time. She was with them and this and that and the other thing. However, I asked Thibodeau about that and Thibodeau was like, I believe her, whatever. If she says it's true, it's true because of what else I know about what he did to other girls there. And I believe her. And she grew up, of course, and told the same story that, Mm -hmm. no, it was all true. Nobody made me say that. And so you can hear in the 
in the discussion, I kind of get into a little back and forth with Gifford there because Gifford had talked to the mother and grandmother and he had accepted their story that this was basically a PR stunt by the girl's father mm -hmm. to try to get some fame for himself as an up-and-coming radio DJ wherever he was or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm siding on with Thibodeau. If Thibodeau, who is one of the Davidians, says that, hey, he believes it because this guy, man, especially in hindsight, looking back, he really was a creep and he really was taking advantage of people like this. That there's no reason to doubt what she said there. Yeah. So, but again, David Koresh doesn't have to be innocent to defend oh, yeah. the Davidians right. overall about what happened here at all. So I don't see why, I don't think it costs the truth a thing to admit the whole truth. That like, yeah, the guy was a piece of crap. If you come anywhere near any woman in your family or any girl in your family, you'd have cut his throat first. Well, not you. I know you're a pacifist. <laughs> I would have. <laughs> I would call up Scott. And say, okay. I'd call so, the ETF on him. Yeah, all right. <laughs> okay, but yeah, but not merely as it doesn't hurt for the but actually I think it, it makes it more believable, incredible what we're trying to do here and what you did in that 12. And let me just mention, I don't want to dwell on this, but my hat's off to you because you had those two guys with you in the studio. You knew what you were doing. Just the incentives, the just the interpersonal, you know you're going to be sitting in a room with those guys for two days. And yet a couple times you really pushed back and told, I guess it was Gifford, like, no, you're wrong on this. And I was just like, whoa, Scott's, that's got some cojones. That's really, so anyway, I was, I was just impressed by that. There was a thing with the fire extinguisher. I don't even know if it's worth telling the story right now, but sure. you know what I'm talking about, no, the fire it's... extinguisher thing where can you briefly, like just a self-encapsulated little anecdote. The point here, folks, I just want you to understand how there were some myths that had arisen on the pro-Davidian side and Scott looked into it and then said, no, I'm not going to repeat that one because I don't think that's right. And then that's an example yeah. with this. Yeah, and this was a huge one. In fact, when Gifford called me and said, we're not going to let them get away with this, are we? He referred to the fire extinguisher crack. Mm -hmm. And this comes from Dick J. Revis, who's a good man. He's a reporter formerly with the San Antonio Express News. He wrote an excellent book called The Ashes of Waco. But he's the one who got this wrong. And I believe he went ahead and conceded to me that, oh, I might have gotten that wrong. Oops. And he's featured in Rules of Engagement saying this, mm -hmm. that, the negotiator asked the Davidian on the phone, you guys got any fire extinguishers in there? And the Davidian says, just one. And the negotiator says, well, I hope you got some fire insurance. Mm -hmm. So Gifford cited that to me and said, you see that? That's premeditated murder, Horton, and we're not going to let them get away with it, are we? And I'm like, hell no. Well, I still believe it was premeditated murder, but not based on that. And the reason why is because we went and dug through those transcripts, me and my producer, who worked on this. And we dug through those transcripts and the only mention of fire extinguishers is, you guys got any fire extinguishers in there? Just one. Oh man, that's bad. Now, what they should have said was, well, screw that. We're sending Jimmy to Walmart and we're going to send in 75 right. fire extinguishers. Right. Because after right? all, what we're concerned about is the children in there. Yes, that's right. Exactly that's the whole right. reason we're here. Yeah, that's right. So that's what they should have said, but they did not. But the whole thing about fire insurance is from a different day. Different discussion is not a taunt has nothing to do with the fire extinguisher discussion. What's happening is Koresh is saying God could start throwing lightning bolts down here and kill us all. Mm -hmm. And the guy goes, oh, you're going to start throwing lightning bolts at us, huh? And Koresh goes, no, not me. God, he can do anything. Don't you know that? 
something like that. Mm -hmm. And the FBI just goes, oh, I guess we all better buy some fire insurance. So okay, yeah. he's not taunting Koresh yeah, yeah. and saying, I'm going to set your house on fire at all. He's just not. He's just not. The context is just the furthest thing from it. Right, right. He might as well have said flood insurance. He ain't got a damn thing to do with arson. Nothing. Okay. And so I'd like to hang my hat on that if I could, but it ain't a hook. Right, Sorry. Right, yeah. Okay, great. That's no, so it. I just, yeah, I love that. And so like I say, folks, not only did Scott do that, but like he was really pushing back. I guess Gifford was the one that was clinging to that because like, oh, it's such a good slam dunk if it were correct yeah. and he didn't want to give it in. It's kind of like, I don't know if you know this, Scott, but in economics, John Maynard Keynes has a famous thing where he says in the long run, we're all dead. Right. And so a lot of right-wing free market types like, see, he's admitting that he doesn't care about the consequences of his disastrous policy. And that's not the content. That's not what he's saying. So I agree. Right. He has disastrous policy recommendations and it would ruin things. And, you know, you got to think of the long run. And he did say that, but in the context, he's not saying yeah. who cares about the consequences of my policies, but right. I've explained it to people and they keep using it because they just love it so much. <laughs> yeah. It would be yeah. so good if he did mean that. Okay. The reason I'm like this, Bob, is because mm. when I was a cab driver back a long time ago, I've, I've really come from more like the conspiracy theory, right? I mean, I've always been a libertarian, but I've been in the 1990s. I was very much like a John Bircher, mm -hmm. like one world government guy and whatever, and more of like a conspiracy guy. And what happened was just people in my cab would go, that's not right. I already know that this, this, and this. And that has just happened to me enough times where it was like, dude, maybe you can just make assumptions <laughs> and fill in all your gaps with what you would like to speculate. And right. instead, you got to be careful and be right so you don't get made a fool of in front of your cab customer. That's great. You know? Yeah. Okay. So can you dwell a little bit? So one of the things that's going to be in terms of the ATF's original, you know, going to serve a warrant or whatever, like, what their rationale for going in originally is going to be, yeah. oh, they have a huge stockpile of illegal firearms. Is that? Yes. And so can you just talk a little bit about like, well, gee, you're telling us, Scott, that they're a bunch of little old church ladies. Well, then why do they have a bunch of guns, huh? So explain yeah. that, Horton. I know. And you know what? It's such a powerful narrative, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Illegal weapons. You're supposed to picture the Davidian cult marching on downtown Waco and killing the mayor and taking over in a putch, you know, or some kind of thing. But like, no, nah, man, as Dick Revis said, the same journalist here, quite correctly, that arsenal of weapons, we call that an inventory. And just like 50,000 other Texans at the time, they had a gun business. Mm -hmm. This is America. This is Texas. People buy and sell guns. People sometimes store large quantities of guns that they are going to then sell, right? And what I learned from Paul Fatta was, and I guess from Thibodeau too, but Fatta especially, he was the guy in charge of the gun business. And he said they didn't even get involved in the gun business until 1991, Guns had never been a part of the Branch Davidians thing, not in any special way. Mm. They just had a few laying around and previous tangent I can't get into now for time, but, the, you know, they just had a few. And in fact, the sheriff had recommended, you boys better keep your own rifles and keep your own guard out here. You're way out in the country. And, but, you know, the mm. sheriff had told them, don't throw those rifles away now. But then they made friends with a guy named Henry McMahon. And people can see footage of Henry McMahon testifying before Congress in Waco, the rules of engagement. And Henry McMahon was a gun dealer in Waco who I'm almost certain Bob had a retail storefront mm -hmm. and was a very open market gun dealer. And 
he told them, man, the Democrats are coming. What you guys want to do is you want to buy a bunch of AR-15s and wait till the Democrats pass their assault weapons ban, and then the prices are going to go way up. And I'm not a firearms law expert at all, but I'm fairly certain that what we're talking about with that is if you already own a gun mm -hmm. that was manufactured as of X year, then you're grandfathered in. You just can't buy new assault weapons right, on right. the assault weapons mm -hmm. If you already have an AR, you're fine. Or if you sell it as a private seller, then you can still do that. Whatever. I don't know exactly okay, the Okay, but he, your point is, like, he wasn't counseling them to do something that would then be illegal. He That's was saying, right. no, you get it in now, you'll get grandfathered, and you're allowed to resell it. It just, you can't have... Yeah, okay. Yeah, and you'll have to pay whatever special taxes and whatever. I don't know exactly the loopholes, but it was essentially, yes, buy low, sell high. Mm -hmm. Open market stuff. Mm -hmm. Open market stuff. Nothing illegal whatsoever. And that was why they got into the business, was just to make money. It was one of their side businesses. And Paul Fatta, who ran the gun business, was not a gun guy at all. Right. He's like, man, I don't even like guns. I don't even know about guns. That was just a job. You know, mm -hmm. Koresh told me, take care of the guns. So I'm buying low and selling high, man. That's my job, mm -hmm. you know? That was it. And people made it out like, oh, this is like some crazy gun cult. The guy in charge of the guns wasn't even interested in guns, Bob. Right. And now, so this is another great point of my own that I had to debunk and overthrow was, and this comes from Thibodeau, that Paul Fatta left that morning with all the guns to go to a gun show in Austin. And that's not true, unfortunately. Paul Fatta did go to a gun show in Austin that morning. But the guns were already there, and they weren't even the Davidians' guns. They were Henry McMahon's guns. He was filling in for Henry McMahon at the gun show in Austin. So my wonderful anecdote, Bob, that I loved for years and years and years, mm -hmm. that, oh, yeah, well, Paul Fatta left with, like, 90% of the guns that morning, two hours before the cops got there. It was kind of a great one, right, to right. me. That's like the Branch Davidian story with Paul Fatta leaving with the, all the guns or without Paul Fatta leaving with all the guns is really different. To me, that's just like the ultimate, like, how do you like them apples kind of thing? Well, it's just not true. And I talked to Paul. He was like, nah, I left that morning with a car full of my son. That's it. Mm -hmm. Sorry. But it's still true. Uh, just to make sure people aren't getting lost because the official narrative is these crazy Davidians with their sex cult and thinking Koresh is Jesus lured the unsuspecting ATF in to an ambush to take them out and kill, what, four of them on February yeah. 28th. Well, I should say, the lie isn't even that elaborate, right? right. They don't ever say, well, they lured us in because that just doesn't make any damn sense right, at all, right. right? So they just call it an ambush anyway. Somehow <laughs> it's an ambush when, like, you're the one trespassing on my yard. What are you talking about, ambush? Yeah, you're right. They just, you're right. That, you know? Yeah, it's not like uh, they set know, their birthday no, cards or something. Yeah, or they made a fake phone call like, help, we're in we're in peril. Someone come help us from the ATF. Yeah, that didn't happen. Right, yeah, seriously. But in any event, because the official narrative is that the Davidians somehow fired first at the very least. Right. And they were looking to pick a fight with the ATF. Your point was, well, if they were going to do that, it'd be kind of stupid for them to send out 90% of their arsenal yeah. right before this big fight happens. Well, and in fact, for them to even be leaving with the guns to buy and sell them just goes to show that they weren't saving up right. a quantity mm -hmm. for the apocalypse. They were t 
turning around and selling the things at gun shows. Again, like tens of thousands of other Texans do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is just, and listen, maybe like people listening to this are from Massachusetts and they're like on puberty blockers and it makes them feel weird or whatever. But I'm just telling you, Texans like guns and have guns and it's perfectly natural to us like belt buckles and stuff. It's not a big deal. We don't consider them to be murder weapons, right? They're just tools. And to some people, there's a real mystique about guns. To other people, no, mm -hmm. right? And go to Arizona and the average guy's got one on his hip. I think the custom in Texas usually is more concealed, although they've legalized now carrying on your hip open if you want to. But there are some places in the country where you got to understand, just some people don't get like anxious about firearms. Firearms mm. are just a thing. They're part of people's lives. And so, but if, when the government goes, hey, NPR lady, you should be really scared of these gun nuts, then that's like convincing because they don't know about guns and they don't really know people who are that comfortable with guns and know all about guns maybe. And so the message can be, pretty powerful. And I guess even for gun owners, they go, look at how crazy and marginal and fringy these people are. When we tell you they had a lot of guns and that it was dangerous, hey, those, are, again, that's law enforcement talking. And they're two ranks above Jesus Christ. What they say is always right. And so conservatives love that stuff. So if, if gun control is being enforced, it's probably for a good reason is what a lot of right-wingers do think, you know? Mm -hmm. At least in the circumstance, maybe not in the abstract, right, but right. show them an example and they'll be like, well, why do you think the cops are seizing their guns? They must have done something wrong. Hey, folks, let's take a quick break from the action just to check in and talk about support. If you would like to see more episodes like this, and believe me, I love doing episodes like this. I feel like I really am doing something good in the world. This is a good use of my talents. And by gosh, somebody ought to be up there doing something like this. But I can't justify doing too many of them the way things are right now unless we get more contributions coming in. So not trying to guilt to trip anybody. I'm going to still do them whether you donate or not. It's just the frequency is going to be affected by the level of support that rolls in. So if you want to do your part in boosting the frequency, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. And thank you to all those who have already done so. Okay, let's get back into this interview. Now we're getting up, I guess, to when the shooting starts. So can you just tell as much as you need, yeah. if you think, to set up this thing? This initial February 28th raid, you believe the ATF, they were doing that for like a photo op. Like they wanted to have a big coup, right. a feather in their cap. Like we went in and busted these people. Look at, we seized all these firearms and took this child molester into custody and da, da, da. And that's not what happened. So can you explain, you know, things yeah. definitely did not go well. So can you kind of give the, an idea of what the heck happened? Mm. Well, and I'm sorry, Bob, because I didn't really answer your previous question about on the charges against them, like in the warrant. Mm -hmm. Gifford told me that he, at the end of the whole thing, he asked the federal prosecutor if you just arrested Koresh jogging or if the whole raid had gone out easily, how many years was Koresh facing in prison or what penalty was he facing for his crimes? And the federal prosecutor, Johnston, Bill Johnston, told him, about five years probation. Wow. So he was in violation of a tax stamp code. This is, in fact, they, I believe that there is evidence that they had at least one fully automatic rifle because there is this, you can hear the audio of a fully automatic rifle break out on the day of the firefight, but just for 10 seconds, the sniper kills him almost immediately and that's mm. over. But that's evidence that there was apparently a machine gun there. But dude, 
that means that they owed a $200 tax right. to get their tax stamp. That's all that means. That's all it means. And so they were in violation of regulations, right? They hadn't committed any crimes. They had committed an offense. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, there's weird gun control laws there where there was this thing called the auto sear. You can drop, the drop-in auto sear is this weirdly machined part that can convert your AR to full auto, although not very well. It's like pull down the trigger and it stays down and dumps your whole mag kind of thing. Uh -huh. And it was against the law to even have a rifle and an auto sear on the same property at the same time, even if you weren't using it, this kind of thing. But again, it was just a fine. Mm -hmm. So that's what they were facing. If they had arrested Koresh proverbially jogging, he would have faced a fine and probation and would not have even gone to prison. That was the evil, danger, felony, death call, apocalyptic preparing for war against the innocent civilians of Waco, that that's what they were actually pursuing there. So then what happened that morning was... And just to be clear, and so the reason they didn't just do that was because, well, then that wouldn't have been a big photo op. That wouldn't have been a big deal to be able to show that's right. Congress at their appropriations hearing. This is right. why we're very vital to, you know, the U.S. They called it Operation Showtime. Really? It was called. <laughs> yeah. And so the Branch Davidians knew that they were coming because one, they, there was an ATF informant who had infiltrated their group and they knew he was a cop. Mm -hmm. And they, there's this little, they're way out in the country, right? There's this tiny little house right across the street that all of a sudden these like obviously upper middle class white guys with upper body builds who are like 29 and 32 all move in across the street. And they're like, oh yeah, no, we're college students, dude. I'm like, what? Your cover's already blown, officer. <laughs> you right, know? right. Uh -huh. They called it the undercover house. And then one of these guys' name was Robert Rodriguez, not a white guy. He had infiltrated the group, but he was reporting back, these people are okay, man. This, everything's all right in here. He, they even took arrest shooting. Nine days before the raid, they brought the firearms and said, hey, you want to go shoot? Koresh goes, sure. Koresh brings the ammo. And they hand him a rifle, and Paul Fata told me it said U.S. government issue, whatever, on an AR-15 that they gave him. Mm -hmm. So he, like, takes a couple shots with it, and it's like, cool. And they hand him a handgun. I think um, Dave Hardy says it was a something special. I'm sorry, I forgot the exact name of it. And Koresh goes, yeah, nice gun, dude. And I guess they were testing out to see just how good of a shot he was or whatever for the upcoming raid. Uh -huh. But it goes to show how dangerous he was not. They handed him their own firearms let him load those weapons and fire them right in their presence nine days before the raid. Could have been a good opportunity to arrest them if that's what they wanted to do. Would have arrested <laughs> them right then, of course. And the morning of the raid, Robert Rodriguez was there. And Koresh, we don't know exactly what happened, but they had a big conversation at the front door that, you know, Thibodeau saw the conversation happen but didn't hear it. But I guess Rodriguez told his side of it was that Koresh told him, look, man, find the Lord or whatever, good luck out there. And we know you're a cop and we know something's about to happen and whatever. So their cover was blown. They knew that that morning something was going to happen. And then also the mailman. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't the mailman tipped them off or something? Yeah, so the mailman, a, news, a newsman ran into the mailman and said, can you tell me how to get to this address? And so he gave it to him. And the guy said, yeah, there's going to be a big shootout there this morning, man. The cops are coming. There's going to be a big raid. Well, the mailman was David Jones, who was Perry Jones' son. He was one of the Branch Davidians. So he immediately turned around and went home and told everybody, hey, man, there's going to be a big raid. They're coming. Can I, the newsman knew because the ATF wanted there to be coverage of this 
photo op event? That's right. Okay. And KWTX was already on the scene with their cameras, the local NBC affiliate. They were already there for like an hour and a half or something, waiting mm-hmm. around for this thing to kick off. It's a Sunday morning. The idea was, oh, they're going to be in church. And Rodriguez said, well, they told me they knew the raid was coming. Oh, maybe Rodriguez had been there when David Jones came and gave the warning that it's coming. Now, I think that's what it was. Mm-hmm. So then, but Rodriguez had reported back. Well, they didn't all start grabbing rifles. They were like in church service and that didn't change. They were all just praying. Mm-hmm. And so that's important because that's, for one thing, the ATF commander said, well, let's go ahead and continue with the raid anyway, even though the element of surprise is lost. Since they're just sitting there praying and not arming up, preparing, you know, waiting for us, we'll still be able to pull off the raid anyway. Mm-hmm. So let's go for it anyway. But the other part of it is that, hey, Bob, they didn't all grab rifles. They were right. still in church service praying. It, they weren't ambushing anyone. So, yes, that's part of why the raid happened anyway. But it's also true that that was what was going on, that they weren't taking the opportunity. Oh, good. We get to kill some cops today. Everybody get a window and a perch and a, and load your rifles and, mm-hmm. and cock them and all that. Not at all. So... But then here's the other thing, though, right? Is this is a big, stupid red herring that they always use. They go, well, the element of surprise was lost, so no wonder that everything went to hell. Heavily implying that, yes, the Davidians all grabbed rifles and right, all ran right. in their windows to prepare for the raid, right? That's what that makes it sound like. It's this excluded kind of middle sort of propaganda. Like, well, the element of surprise was lost. The element of surprise was lost. What else do you need to know? Well, what you need to know is that when the element of surprise was lost, the branch of idiots still did not all go and grab rifles. And then that's also why the raid proceeded. Although Rodriguez swears that he ran out in the street and tried to stop them, waving his arms, please stop. And they just rolled right past him and did the raid anyway. So then there's the question of who shot first, obviously. Well, can you, you know the details of, at this point, what's happening? Are guys walking up? Are they driving up in vehicles or... They're driving up in pickup trucks, towing trailers, uh, flatbed trailers that are covered in tarps. And this part of it, they called Operation Trojan Horse. They're cattle trailers. And then the idea was, I guess, that the Davidians would go, huh, I wonder who's pulling up in our yard with cattle trailers. And then be surprised when 75 cops pour out. And... It's just insane that they would try to take a house that big that they know is full of women and children like that in a violent race. It's just amazing that anyone that you think of all the people who had to approve of that up mm-hmm. and down the chain of command to approve of that and, to go and did forward. You, is 75 the actual number? Very close to that, yeah. And so they, they were going to what? Just go up and knock on the door or they were going to kick the door and just run in and like it was a drug raid? Yes, they were going to, yeah, it was presumably going to be a dynamic entry into the house. And then because they had guys, they took ladders and went up to the second floor and to go into the window uh from the roof of the first floor and all these things are like raiding from all different directions. And that, that, that's better for the cameras and that's better for telling Congress we need our funding because look at the kind of stuff we got to do. Well, I mean, because the house is huge, right? right? I think they knew or they had reason to believe that the guns are here. We want to get to the gun store. And but you got to get up on the roof of the chapel and get into the right, second right. floor gun room there. And that's where you see ATF agents in the KWTX footage go in that room and then get shot. And there's a question of friendly fire right there. I believe that 
I'm not sure if those are, the, I don't believe that those are the agents that died though, the ones who were shot right there, but they were shot, I think, with nine millimeter hydroshock rounds, in other words, from mm. ATF blocks. They shot each other. Can we, just to get in their mindset though, because something I, that wasn't on my That's radar. 45, I, I'm sorry, I meant to say uh, 40 caliber. Okay. Hydroshock is what I meant to say right there. Sorry, go ahead. Is that for this raid? Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I got to correct that again. Okay. Nine millimeter hydroshock. Is that what I said the I first time? I think you said the first time, yeah. Okay, no, 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 that's so You doubted nine, yourself nine wrong. Nine okay. Glock rounds, you know, yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so were the ATF agents on the morning of this raid, they were doing stuff like putting their blood types on their necks or something? Yeah, so this was part of, oh, the cover's blown. They're still getting dressed. Mm -hmm. Oh, our cover's blown. They know we're coming, but we're still going anyway. And then so like the mood is all grim. They said there's, I played clips, I think, where they talk about how Normally, everything's cool, but like here, they were like, oh my God, we're marching to our deaths. And like everybody, their commanders are telling, write your blood type on your neck and all of this. And so then on the way there, all in the trailer, they're all silent. They're like men going into battle. They're, so they're so psyched up that they're about to be ambushed, that their surprise is lost, but the commanders say we're going anyway. And you can hear the ATF agents now condemning them for that. They should have never sent us when they knew the cover was blown. Again, implying that there was an ambush. That they still believe that there was an ambush when it just wasn't true. So there, we know that the cops shot first because Agent Ballesteros admitted that his buddy next to him fired first. Good enough for me. Mm. And the dogs were in their pens. They had Malamues. Were, these are like non-dangerous. They're like Alaskan sled dogs or something, which, geez, is... I don't know if they're sled dogs, but there's some kind of extremely hairy dog. Probably not a good dog for Central Texas, you know? I don't know how close they had them shaped. But anyway, these are like harmless dogs, right? This is like Lassie, the pup. This is not a pit bull. That's like a real dangerous guard dog of any kind. They're pet dogs is all, not guard dogs. And they're in a pen, in a chicken wire pen anyway. And the cops come up and kill them. Does everybody kind of agree that literally the first shots were them shooting dogs and then the dispute is no. just whether human being shot at humans, who did first? No, and in fact, so the, of course, Balesteros changed his story when they told him, man, you're not supposed to say that stupid. And then he went, and, oh yeah, no, I, yeah, actually, man, it was them Davidians were firing at us, you know. Mm. The ATF side of the story, and I play the audio in the whole thing, is, oh, we got there and they just full open up, raining down machine gun fire on us all mm. and just blowing us to pieces. And poor little us, we're hiding behind this little fence and they're just ripping us to shreds. It's like, yeah, but only one ATF agent died at the front. And they describe it and it's like a few minutes into the battle, a bullet goes through a car window and gets him in the head. Mm. But so that proves right there that they're lying. That proves that their whole story that, yeah, we showed up, we poured out of there and they just, every window just opened up with fire and machine gun fire, fully automatic fire at us. It's just absolute nonsense. I mean, they don't even have many wounded at all from the front there. So the one ATF agent died there, two of them died on the roof, and then one of them died, I believe, on the north side of the building. I'm not exactly sure where the fourth one was, Bob. Okay. But anyway... Their story that the Davidians had just opened up on them when they pulled up and got out of the trailers. I mean, first of all, it was going to be an ambush. They'd have shot them all while they're still in their trailers, right? Everybody concentrate on the trailers, just blow them away in there or kill them as right, they're pouring. They, they were just, they had a tarp over that that wasn't like yeah, it was yeah, an armored vehicle. Yeah. 
Yeah. So like, or like Private Ryan, you know, like the gate comes down on the troop ship, they start pouring out and the machine gun fire meets them and, and tears right. them up, right? right? That's what you would expect if there was any kind of ambush. There's nothing like that happened. It's just a lie. So can I ask you, so what do you think? Do you think like some of the Davidians did have guns? Because like, hey, there's a bunch of guys pouring out. And then once they started shooting dogs, they got really ready. And well, then they- It's complicated, uh-huh. man. And I, I think, so David Hardy has the best timeline in, mm-hmm. in this is not an assault where people can go and look and he tries to match up the different audio. You know, they destroyed all the video evidence in their raid. They had filmed it all themselves, of course, and they destroyed all of that. I think you mean it was accidentally deleted. Yeah. They had forgot to hit record on the thing. But so I think, you know, Dave has the best audio that he tries to match up different audio sources from the 911 call inside and from what was called the radio van that the ATF had out front and the news footage. And then... Here's one of his theories, is that actually the first shots came from the back. The first shots came from a Huey helicopter, surplus from LBJ's Imperial War in Vietnam. And they lied and used the drug war as an excuse to get all this military equipment, first for the ATF raid and later for the FBI siege. They claimed that there was a meth lab in there, which was a giant lie, but that was Ronald Reagan and Joe Biden's loophole in Posse Comitatus to use the military against Mm -hmm. American civilians. And Ann Richards approved it, which is, in fact, Ann Richards approving the use of this National Guard uh, He's governor of Texas at the time? Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Against the Branch Davidians and then her veto of the concealed carry law is what gave us George W. Bush And the entire third millennium started off on the wrong foot here with four million people killed and America absolutely disgraced. And it was all her fault because she refused to stand up for the rights of those people. So there's a hell she's burning in it. Thanks a lot, lady. But anyway, so Hardy has audio Mm -hmm. of from the helicopter. And you hear thunk, 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 hit the helicopter. And then you hear the helicopter firing. And so the way that he extrapolates it, he says, I think, or no, I have it wrong. I think first you hear gunfire and then you hear thunk, 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 thunk. So he says, but then when you hear the thunk, thunk, thunk hitting the helicopter, there's no sound of gunshots accompanying, accompanying that. So in other words, you hear fire from the helicopter first and you know that fires from the helicopter because right. later when you hear fire hit the helicopter you do not hear gunshots it's too far away the helicopter's too loud etc mm-hmm. right so the sound wave from the gunshot is not getting to the mic but the sound of the bullets hitting the helicopter is right so that shows that those first gunshots are coming from the helicopter and the way that he lines the time up he thinks that was first the helicopters came up the back of the building and they were the first shots fired and then the Davidian in the back returned fire and people in the front, everyone heard the gunshots right. from return fire from the house down on the ground. And then everybody panicked and started shooting. That's one theory of it. Now, the story Can I stop you told- there? Let me pull a Scott Horton with the fire extinguisher. Like, when I heard you guys have that exchange, it occurred to me, strictly speaking, someone in the house could have fired first and missed the helicopter. And so then that mic wouldn't have picked anything up, right? Because you wouldn't have heard a thump. And so, and again, you know, it doesn't prove it, but technically that could have happened. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Again, no evidence of that. But, right, right. But yeah, that would make sense that if they had fired and missed that, although I don't think the helicopter pilot ever said that or anything like sure, that. Sure, yeah. You know? I mean, right. You would have expected, oh, sure, they're firing as a smaller or something. But <laughs> no. yeah. But now, so 
There's so much testimony from all different people, though, that say that what really the very first thing that happened was that Koresh came out. He put his hands up and he was like on the porch, like coming down the stairs outside. Mm -hmm. And I guess there's two different versions of this. Some say he's like in the doorway. Others say he's like walking out toward them. Right. Hands up and says, wait, wait, wait. There are women and children in here. And they open fire on him. Mm -hmm. They shoot him in the hand. They shoot him in the upper left pelvis. And then a bullet comes under his arm because his hand is raised. The bullet comes under like his armpit and kills his father-in-law, shoots him in the sternum, Perry Jones. And then he falls back into the house. Mm -hmm. And the cops all open up. In fact, if you want, let me play real quick the sound of the battle here. Sure. And by the way, just possibly cast doubt on the theory about shooting the dogs first because you hear at least some dogs being killed in this. If little kids are listening, you might want to, I don't know, it's the sound of dogs being killed. But it's a, it's already quite a few seconds into the audio here before that happens. Now, as you would point out, it doesn't prove that no dogs were killed before right, this audio right. began being recorded. Mm -hmm. That's possible. But as I say, it, it at least raises questions about that. But this is the, the sound of the battle from out front from KWTX TV. Oh, and by the way, I have to add this, Bob. This is just fantastic to me. A guy on Twitter said, hey, here's the thing I wrote about Waco, whatever, whatever. And I looked at it and in, he had embedded in there video of the raid. Mm -hmm. And it was from America's Most Wanted, hosted by John Walsh. Yeah. And they had the KWTX footage in it. But man, they had overdubbed an entire fake Hollywood soundtrack of gunfire. They had like double, triple, quadrupled the amount of gunfire and fancy ricochets and all of this stuff, man. Oh, and wow. I'm like, really? That's so fake. Cause here is the real footage from KWTX TV. Now it was just incredible to see how cynical they are with that. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's the sound of our poor ATF agents being ambushed. And you're supposed to believe everything that you're hearing is coming from the house somehow. Right. And you're supposed to believe that it's 10 times what was actually going on mm -hmm. at the time. It's incredible. It? This is not too long here. Okay, so all of that is coming from outside the house. And in that footage, and you can see the KWTX footage, the raw footage on YouTube, and then you can see clips of it in the rules of engagement. There's no windows being shattered on the cars they're hiding behind. There's no dirt and dust being picked up from bullets hitting the dirt next to them. They're not being fired upon, or they're barely being fired upon in that footage. And they're just all lined up and they're just empty in their clips into the house, blindly firing into the house through walls, through windows that they can't see who's in there at all. It's a house that they know is full of women and children up front. It's not like, oh, geez, we didn't know there was women and children in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they sure did. And they killed Winston Blake was evidently sitting on his bed, eating breakfast, was killed by a helicopter that flew by. And there was a guy, oh man, I'm so sorry. I'm so bad at the names now, Bob. I'm sorry. The guy, there was a guy who was scraping rust in the water tower mm -hmm. who climbed up there to see what was going on. The helicopter flies by and kills him. Although there's a conflicting report, he may have been killed by a sniper on the ground who had confused because someone was calling out, Tower 2, Tower 2. But that wasn't the water tower. That was 
the other third story part of the building. Mm -hmm. And so it could be, could have been that a ground sniper killed him just coincidentally as the helicopter was flying by. But we see footage of the helicopter flying mm -hmm. by and he's shot dead, unarmed man. And I'm virtually certain that there's only one Davidian who was killed that you could credibly believe was armed and firing, again, in self-defense, as the jury found, mm -hmm. in self-defense against the ATF who was killed. I believe every other Davidian that was killed, the other five Davidians that were killed that day were all non-combatants. They were all just, I mean, they were all civilians, of course, but were not even armed. We're not even attempting to defend themselves. They were just innocent people in the house who were killed. Okay. You had said a couple of things I just want to not brush over. So for one sure. thing, someone in the house called 911. Yeah, let's, you want to hear that? Sure, yeah, if you got that handy. Okay, so this is Wayne Martin, and he was the second black man to gra graduate from Harvard Law School as Alan Stone, a professor at Yale and a psychiatrist who was hired by the government to come in and analyze the situation, put it, he was not a kook. He was not a weirdo. He was not a criminal. What does a criminal do when the cops raid his house? Does he pick up the phone and call 911 for help? No, or when they're deliberately ambushing them to like, ha, 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 <laughs> they're coming to our clutches. No, they don't call 911. Here's Wayne Martin. Now, what's your emergency? 911, what's your emergency? There are men, 75 men around our building. Okay, just, just a moment. Oh, cool. This Lynch. Hello? Hello? Hello. 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 Yeah, this is Lieutenant Lynch. May I help you? Yeah, there's 75 men around our building and they're shooting at us in Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, tell them there are children and women in here and to call it off. Right, all right. Uh, hello? I hear gunfire. Oh, shit. Hello? Who is this? Hello? Call it off! Who is this? Hello? Hello? Oh, Hello? Where's this coming from? Wayne Martin. Hello? Wayne. He said there was 75 men circling. Morning. Got to hit the Anyway, you know, I'm sorry, Bob. I, I do have a better edited version of that where, you know, it gets to the point. It has more of the back and forth there, not just the sheriff calling his name over and over like that for you. So maybe I'll send you that clip. Okay, and, we can try. But it still, it proves the point. And wasn't there, I don't know if we just missed it on that one or if it's on your other clip, but where the guy like curses the media coverage, like he's blaming. Right. He says that effing newspaper. Right, right. When I heard that, I didn't fully get it until you and I were just talking now. And then I realized, so the sheriff was thinking it was that report about the alleged child abuse. Like, that's not why people are up there getting shot right now. Yeah. Or what I interpret that to mean is everybody in the local sheriff's office knew that the ATF was raiding this place. Uh -huh. And then the idea was 
the newspaper by jumping the gun and running their big article, The Sinful Messiah, essentially tipped the Davidians off that they were under investigation okay. and going to be raided. And that was what led to the botched raid. That's okay. My interpretation okay. of his thinking there was that damn newspaper, in other words, blew the operation. Okay, okay. You know? Okay, yeah, that makes more sense, yeah. Okay. But as you say, the the fact that somebody there is calling 911 saying, hey, there's women in what's going on, and the Koresh himself runs out and says, guys, there's women and children here, that suggested that Koresh didn't fully appreciate, you know, I think, in other words, well, gee, they must not know what's going on. Like, why would they be doing this if they knew there were women and children here? Like, just kind of showing Koresh was not up to speed with what these guys were doing. Right. And in fact, you know what, Bob? I found the better edit of that. Let me, let me okay. dump this in. It's short. Yeah, there are 75 men around our building and they're shooting at us at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, tell them there are children and women in here. All right, and so he's on the phone with them on and off during this whole thing for like 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And David Hardy does this masterful job of recreating what's going on in the house. At some point, I think the cops hang up and call back. And then they get the answering machine. For you youngsters, we used to have these things called answering mm -hmm. machines. And if someone didn't answer and the machine was recording, you could hear it in the room. So it was like an automatic speakerphone one way. Pick up, man, it's me, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what they were doing. You know, sheriff's office, please answer, please answer. And so finally someone did pick up the phone. And so there's an open line and you can hear all kinds of stuff going on in, in the whole version of all of that audio that Hardy goes through. And he just goes to show, when he's saying, call it off, call it off, 911 has no capability of calling it off. The sheriff's department has no contact with ATF at all. Mm -hmm. After like half an hour or more, 35 minutes or something, finally a college police officer who's got radio contact and is close goes out there and plays middleman between the ATF and the 911 operator who's playing middleman with the Branch Davidians trying to negotiate a ceasefire. And all the Branch Davidians are trying to do is to get the cops to stop. That's mm -hmm. all they're doing. Cease fire, cease fire. And man, it's in the book. It's so good. You really, you know, people who are interested in this really should read. It's called, This Is Not An Assault. And he shows in there, he recreates all of this as it's happening so well. How Wayne Martin is like taking command and he's saying, everyone cease fire as a show of good faith to the cops. We're ceasing fire. Now you stop. Wayne Martin being the guy that was on the 911. The, yeah. Yeah. Idiot. Yeah. So he's going around telling everybody, hey, guys, you need to stop shooting so I can tell the 911. Like, we've stopped. Tell right. them to stop. Yep. Okay. And then there's at one point, a guy on the third floor keeps shooting. And the idea is that he didn't get word or he's just so freaked out and sees mm. guys with guns out there. And I guess and his still hearing would have been gone at that point. Yeah. And his hearing maybe would have been blown out by then. And so... 
he went up there, he sent someone up there to tell that guy to stop, stop, stop. And then when the cops wanted to come and get their wounded, they said, come and get your wounded, but you got to send four unarmed men. And they were like, no way. And he goes, okay, just send four men then. Mm -hmm. You got, and then eh, I forgot how it was. There was some misinterpretation that he had said. They said, we're going to send five men. And he said, okay, five men. And then someone misunderstood that as him saying you have five minutes right. or something like it was another threat or something when it wasn't. Anyway, I guess that's a side issue. So no, I, I do, but yeah. So it was interesting just to, but it did show that the Davidian guy trying to negotiate and trying to take charge and to calm this thing down. He really was, like you say, admitting like, oh yeah, sorry, the guy up there was shooting. That was our fault. We, we told him to stop. And as, and, soon as, yeah. as soon as the cops stop fighting, that's it. Mm -hmm. The Davidians do not kill them. I've been there a bunch of times, man. This is the prairie. And these guys have rifles. When those cops are withdrawing, the branch civilians could have shot every one of them in the neck, right? They'd have been dead, dead, dead. They did not do that at all. You guys withdrawing? Withdraw then. Get the hell off of our property. And that was it. Why were only four killed? Because of the restraint of the branch civilians. That's why. And the cops, they just lie about this. Man, I got these ATF agents saying they fired 10,000 rounds at us. Oh, yeah? Then how come you're not dead, liar? Mm -hmm. They're liars. And for people to understand why you're so confident that it's because this is pretty close quarters. It's not like they were shooting Absolutely. a football field Absolutely. away. Dude, we're talking 20 yards. Yeah. We're talking right out the window, the other side of the picket fence. It's right there. People can look at the property themselves. Give me a break, man. Mm -hmm. A fully automatic rifle at a man with no armor. <laughs> and But they're all completely unarmed somehow. And every there was all this machine gun fire, and yet no one was killed by a machine gun. They had 50 caliber machine guns, but no one was killed by a machine gun. No one was killed by a 50 caliber. Mm -hmm. They claimed that a 50 caliber round was fired and hit the engine block and then exploded, and guys were wounded by the shrapnel from it. But I just don't believe them. I mean, the Davidians did have a 50 caliber, which is not illegal, a Barrett, but they did not have a 50 caliber machine gun. If they had a 50 caliber machine gun, Bob, and they had ambush the ATF, we'd have been talking, we would be talking about the absolute horror show bloodbath of February 28th, 1993, when the branch Davidians annihilated the division of ATF troops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's just not what happened yeah, at all. Right. You know? You mentioned how they're just lying about all this stuff. The most classic was the stuff with the, is this the helicopter? Like, this is the day when Kavanaugh is testifying yes. and this is what he's talking about, right? About the helicopters right. on this day. So Kavanaugh is the ATF commander, Jim Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. And he's denying under oath that his men fired from helicopters. And this features everybody's favorite now Senator from New York as well. Is there any way that somebody could believe that justifiable homicide could be used as a defense here? No, Mr. Schumer. They shot through the doors. They shot through the ceilings. Assertions that we had helicopters or men from Mars shooting at them is nonsense. Our agents were laying on the ground, shooting at a tower three stories high. Should we be surprised there's bullets in the roof? Of course. I agree with you, Mr. I'm Cameron. sorry. Thank you. Of course, we never got to examine those bullet holes in the roof because the mm -hmm. uh, cops burnt the house down. Okay. And so, and there was a tell, like you, so that was Chuck Schumer. I don't know if you literally said that in your show, 
you had mentioned this, did like there's sort of a little bit of a tell there where he had to go big and say, they said they were shooting from helicopters to Martians. Like, why did you need to say that? Like, he he had to really sell how crazy. When no, the more modest claim was they were shooting us from helicopters, and then you could say, oh, well, let's have a rational inquiry. Do were you? But instead, he had to do the Martian thing just to show how ludicrous these people are. Yeah. Well, and see, we already know that he knows that he's perjuring himself under oath in front of the Congress because we have him on audio admitting that. Yeah, this is this is my favorite thing. Of course, if you got that clip written. So remind us again, who is Jim Kavanaugh? Jim Kavanaugh was the ATF commander on scene. He was the highest authority. He was the highest guy there. Okay. And then he's talking to, is it Steve Schneider? Am I saying that right? I'm sorry. Yes. And he here he's on the phone with Steve Schneider and then with Kavanaugh. And, so, and so folks, just to say that, so Schneider is talking to Kavanaugh. And this is as the, uh, is this like after the shooting stopped on February 28th? Exactly. Right. A few days later. A few days later. maybe okay. a day, okay. two later. Okay. Yes. So this is not actively during the 28th raid. This is in the aftermath. Correct. But obviously before, exactly. you know. I would say out of the seven week siege, this is toward the very beginning Okay. Of it. And so, I don't have so, yeah. stamp on so this. Schneider's okay. talking to Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh's going to convalesce something. Other was we talking about helicopter, and then he's going to hand the phone over to Koresh, who's going to be a little upset. And just listen, folks, to how the narrative gets walked back. This is hilarious. Okay, go ahead. Well, I think we need to, uh, you know, set the record straight, and that is that there was no guns on those helicopters. There was National Guard officers on those helicopters. There was no guns on those helicopters. That's a lie. That is a lie. He's a damn liar. Did you hear that? I know what he said, but it's 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 not true. He, says, he went to talk to you now. Okay. Now, Jim, you're a damn liar. Now, let's get real. David, you're sitting. No, you listen to me. You're sitting there and telling me that there were no guns on that helicopter. I said they didn't shoot. There's no guns. You shot. are a damn liar. Oh, you're wrong, David. You are a liar. Okay. And, you know, let me tell you something. That may be what you might want the media to believe. But there's other people that saw too. Now tell me, Jim, again. You're honestly going to say those helicopters didn't fire on any of us? David? I'm here. Yeah, what I'm saying is that those helicopters did not have mounted guns, okay? I'm not disputing the fact that there might have been... uh, fire from the helicopters. What I'm telling you is there was no mounted guns, you know, outside mounted guns on those helicopters. I agree with you on oh, that. All right, and that's, that's the only thing I'm saying. Now, the agents on the helicopters had guns. I agree with you okay. on that. You understand what I'm saying? Well, no. What the dispute was over, I believe, Jim, is that you said that they didn't fire on us from the helicopter. Well, what I mean is a mounted gun. Yeah, but beside the point, what they did have was machine guns. Okay, I don't, I don't know what they had. They were armed. The people inside had pistols or we agree rifles. Then. Okay, all right, that's good. That's good, we agree. Okay, let's just leave it at that. Okay. So, I mean, this is classic everybody. I hope you caught it, how hilarious that was and how he walked that back. But what's interesting, also, I think people got a sense of, like, the personal energy of David Koresh there. Like, you could see how, oh, uh-huh. yeah, like, I can see how he can have a bunch of people following him. What's interesting too, though, Scott, is it wasn't merely that he just said, I'm going to give you a chance to rethink that. He said other people saw it. So I wonder if that's partly why Kevin was like, oh, yeah, I guess I don't know. Who knows what? I better step carefully here. There were news cameras there that day after all, you mm-hmm. know. 
And much of that footage has never seen the light of day, even the news footage, I think. And so folks, to make sure you get it, what you just heard was the same guy who, in the earlier clip, which happened obviously later after everything went down, he's testifying to Congress where he's, and some people are claiming there were helicopters shooting at them. <laughs> it's like, I mean, when he just, you saw what he did there. Yep. Let's take another break, folks, from the action. Just to remind you, Scott and I are having this conversation because the Libertarian Institute went to the trouble of allowing Scott, financing him, interviewing two experts on Waco out in California. They had to fly the one guy out there and put him up in a hotel. That costs money when you listen to, and you really need to, the 12 and a half hour plus production, you will agree the world is better because that occurred. And so how does that happen? Because people like you contribute to the Libertarian Institute. All right, it's the kind of thing you just think, oh, yeah, 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 so other people do it. I'll, I'll do it at some point. You can do it. You can do it, and you're going to feel better after you have done it. Besides Scott, they've got people like Sheldon Richmond, Jim Bovard, Lori Calhoun, Ted Galen Carpenter, some other young pups up and coming. It's not just Scott's books that they support, but also all the podcasts associated with those folks. And if you know those names, there's a, it's a certain type of libertarian, and they need a home. And they belong at the Libertarian Institute, but that can only work if enough people support it. And so that group now can include you. So go to libertarianinstitute.org. No amount's too small, but why push it? Why don't you make a bigger donation just so there's no doubt about it? Okay, joking aside, please give them support if you can, folks. I know Scott will appreciate it. And now, back to our discussion of the Waco tragedy. Okay, I guess, should we talk about the door right now? Because it was from this raid where the... And so... And this goes to the Koresh story that he said, hey, there's women and children in here. Wait, wait, wait. And mm. they just opened fire on him. And he mm. fell back into the house. Mm. And then the front door of the place was essentially a double white metal door, white painted door. Mm-hmm. And so the ATF story is that the Davidians were firing blindly through the door at them. In fact, one of them specifically says he remembers like the puffs of the insulation inside the door coming out like a little bit of snow with the gunshots. Which I don't know. That sounded believable to me. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, and you can see from far away that the door is riddled with holes. You can see little black dots all over the thing, right? But we have sworn testimony and quite believable testimony from Dick DeGaron, who is, you know, a star lawyer in Texas, a major defense lawyer here, who is Koresh's lawyer, and Jack Zimmerman, who was Steve Schneider's lawyer. And Jack Zimmerman was a colonel in the Army National Guard. And DeGaron said he wasn't a veteran, but he's been hunting all his life and he knows what for from firearms. Mm -hmm. And they both said that the door was riddled with incoming bullet holes. And picture what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about a steel door where the steel is, what, a 16th of an inch thick or not even, right? And it's kind of hollow on the inside. And then there's another side to it, little insulation or whatever in the middle, Mm -hmm. right? So any bullet round going either direction through that door is going to leave an absolute 100% unmistakable telltale pattern of whether it's an entry or exit Mm -hmm. the way the metal is bent 
right? I and mean, you just picture a bullet piercing a thin sheet of metal. It's going to be dented in in the direction the bullet was traveling, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. And here, Jack Zimmerman, who's a colonel in the National Guard, is like, yeah, I'm telling you, dude, the door was riddled with incoming bullet holes. DeGaron said the same thing. And then after the fire, that door disappeared. Well, yeah, I was going to say, so they it was in the FBI's custody. Right. And then the official story is, sorry, we lost the door, right? So then I'm bummed because it only occurred to me at the time and Gifford blabbed something over my awesome joke. No offense, Dan, I love you, dude, if you're listening. <laughs> my awesome joke was, you know, because he just said, obviously, they just went to the landfill. They just destroyed it somewhere, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Yeah, either that or it's hanging on the wall at Quantico like Han Solo and Carbonite, you know, as your <laughs> trope. Yeah, right, right. But anyways. I was picturing it being next to the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Okay, but again, make sure people get that it's critical. Like, and this is for me, like this is one of the most eye-opening things for me. It's not that the FBI said, well, yeah, it was a crazy day. There was gov, and after the rubble, we don't know what happened to the door. Am I right? They said that they said we did have it and we lost it somehow. Is that what they said? Yeah. Okay, I believe so. Again, if they even answered, right? There's you can't have it. It's gone. Okay, I think they did claim to have lost it. Okay, I mean, because I mean, I filed that away mentally. That oh my gosh, their yeah. official story is they're saying they lost the door, not just yeah, yeah we never had it. We don't know what and happened that to is it. Right, because. It isn't like they're just ignoring us because they had to answer to Congress for mm -hmm. this. So they did have to have an official answer, which was, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> and also, unlike 9-11, where you could see evidence coming down, but like there, even with the fire, there's the door would still be, like a metal door doesn't just burn up. You know what I mean? Like, so it would have to be there. Even if it had been subjected to the worst of the fire somehow, like if, it, if the frame around it had fallen in uh -huh. and it had just sat there and burn and burn and burn and all the paint had been burnt away. You'd still have the dents right. this way and that way through that door, unmistakable. You'd have to melt the thing to liquid to get rid of that, you know? And another thing that was interesting is, am I right, that during the siege, the Davidians were in a sense taunting the government agents saying, the truth That's will right. out, we have the door, that proves you exactly. guys fired right. at us. Exactly. And this is why I always believed and really nothing's, well, I have a little more nuance maybe now that I'm older, but I still, I think, believe that the plan always was eventually that they got to destroy that house. They got to burn that evidence up because they just can't let the British Davidians have all that as defense exhibit A for what happened to them that day. Right. And they ended up being acquitted anyway. I don't want to skip ahead, but the jury found them not guilty of murdering those cops. Yeah. So, yeah, I am looking at the clock. And so, yeah, why don't we... Jump ahead. I got an hour. We're only halfway here. Yeah. But I can to talk faster. Well, yeah, I think I only have like 45 minutes myself on my end. Okay. Okay. So that'll be fine. Yeah. So there's the siege going on. So now the FBI comes in, right? So this was in the ATF raid, the February 28th one. They were the ones mm -hmm. in charge. Right. That was their deal, whatever. Now the FBI comes in. Is that correct? Are they like the commanding? I don't know what the terminology is. Are they in charge? Yeah, absolutely. Jeff Jamar of the San Antonio office is the special agent in charge, comes and takes over the whole thing that night or by the next morning. Okay. And then it's their siege. Okay. And it's, oh, it's the hostage rescue team. So that's good. At least it's the people who are real diplomatic and are concerned about the children, right? Yeah, except that 
That name's kind of misleading, Bob, <laughs> as you might suspect. Kind of like Homeland Security is really not about keeping yeah. Homeland Secure. I really like the way David Hardy put this. I think it was really important the way that he said this. And I know some special forces guys who've explained this to me separately fairly well and agree with this, that the FBI is lousy with SWAT teams. They have SWAT team in every city, dude. Federals in every major city. Mm -hmm. There are national government police ready to kick your door in in case of XYZ, whatever. They got SWAT teams everywhere. The hostage rescue team is not a SWAT team. The hostage rescue team, they really are a military special operations team. They are, I don't want to say Navy SEAL Team 6 and the Delta Force because that's like the very, very top tier. Mm -hmm. But they're essentially Green Berets, right? Mm -hmm. They're essentially special forces. And they're soldiers. Their job is to destroy enemies. They're not cops. Mm -hmm. They're not cops. What they do is what the SEALs and Delta do in Afghanistan, night raids, mm -hmm. where they go in there and they kill the guy. They're soldiers. Yeah. And so the fact that they work for the FBI is like an illusion in a sense. And that they're called hostage rescue team, which makes it sound like their specialty is getting civilians out safely. Yeah, exactly. And... Again, I'm not saying that they're Delta or SEALs who are like top tier. They're more like second or I don't know. I'm not part of the community. What do I know? Maybe they're, maybe someone in the Green Berets would scoff and say, no, they're third tier special forces. Fine. But they're not cops. They are soldiers. And almost all of them, of course, came from special operations forces and then got a higher paying job at the FBI or whatever it was. Is how they got there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Same as like the CIA special activities center where the, all their paramilitary guys, well, where do they get them from? They get it from the army. Yeah. You yeah, know? Right. So that's who they are. And that's who trained the ATF for their raid in the first place. And again, in the name of the drug war, you know, the war on guns and the war on drugs, what does that really mean? It means there's no bill of rights and they can do what they want with you. You're like, well, I think drugs are immoral. Yeah. Well, how do you like cops invoking drugs to use the military to murder Texans? So that's what the war on drugs really is. Yeah, that would also that's be immoral. That's what happened to the branch They couldn't have done any of what they did without the war on drugs, Bob. There was no loophole to allow for any of this for Joe Biden and Ronald Reagan cut a deal that said that the military mm -hmm. can be used in this way and all that equipment and everything. And then, yes, yeah, so the, again, the narrative was these horrible, evil Charles Manton cultists, armed to the teeth, prepared for the apocalypse, ambushed and ruthlessly slaughtered four of our innocent ATF angels who left children behind, Bob. And so now the heroic FBI is going to save the day and teach these criminals what life is all about under the rule of law here in the USA, boy. And that was the narrative and they ran with it and they pushed it so hard. And then Koresh played into it in his way. Again, can't crawl on his mind. I'm just telling you the fact. He said, and they did send, some people came right out, like right away. Women and children and elderly and all kinds of different people. But he said now that, of course, everyone is free to leave. But he was not coming out. God had told him to wait. There was something more that he wanted from this situation. So... Whether, okay, God yeah. talks to people, whether God talks to Koresh is really beside the point. That's the history of what happened, I'm telling you, is all. Go okay. ahead. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I did want to understand that, that it's, I'm trying to think, if I'm at church and 
the ATF comes in and people are dead on both sides and everything calms down and I got my kids in there with me, I think I'm going to figure out I got to get out of here. And so that's what I'm with. So you're saying, number one, everything you know, it wasn't that Koresh told people, no, we're not leaving. We got to stick together. Like people were free to leave if they wanted to. That's right. And then some yes. people did leave. So it wasn't necessarily they thought, oh, gee, if I step outside, are they going to mow me down? That there was a period where it, they could have plausibly believed like some people did leave and they didn't get shot on site. Yes. And over the first few days, they continued to negotiate and more and more people came out, especially at first. Okay. But the thing was, immediately they put the little old ladies in full shackles and treated them all like, mm -hmm. again, this mm -hmm. narrative. This is Saddam Hussein's deck of cards. This little old Catherine Madison, she's Chemical Ali. We got her. Mm -hmm. And all this crap. You know, this 82-year-old lady or whatever, giving her this perp walk. And a bunch of them, too. A lot of them. And just took all the kids, stripped them of their children immediately and put them in foster care and all of this ruthlessly. You could argue, or at least like suspect, that, geez, they were trying to convince the people inside that this is what's going to happen to you if you right, surrender to right, us. Right, right, right. You're not going to get a fair shake at all. We're going to burn you at the stake. And so they certainly were being clumsy and at the very least were doing a bad job of saying, look, man, if you're a little old lady who didn't murder anybody, of course we're going to treat you fairly. Come right, on, this is right. America, dude. What are we talking right. about here? It wasn't like that. And then Koresh said, look, this is the, it's too complicated to get too far into, but originally the prophecy was they were supposed to all go to Israel and join the IDF and fight the forces of Satan when the apocalypse comes, mm -hmm. which is just someday when once 144,000 people follow Koresh, they're all going to go join the Israeli army. Like, this is just some fantasy. That was the conflict of the Battle of Armageddon they were going to fight. It was at Armageddon Hill, right? Mm -hmm. This is... All of a sudden, Babylon, which they never were supposed to go to war with, it's just like the oppressor in the, the heart of the empire where they live. Now Babylon is coming to them. And so this is all, and you have to understand you seriously, and I'm not a religious guy at all. I know that you are. I don't know exactly which sect that you're from or whatever, but I know a lot of people listening to the show are very sincere in their faith and understand this probably a lot better than I do and maybe can't relate directly to this, but these people were absolutely living through the pages of the Bible and not just the Bible, but all prophecy. Mm. And they're living this stuff day in and day out. And you can hear in the transcripts and in the audio, they're like, dude, you have to understand, this is just like in the book of Nahum. And this is just like in the book of Nabakabak. And this is just like in the book of whatever the hell, where there's this chariot and it has this fire and God said that this and that and whatever. And it's, they can't talk about anything else. They can't, mm -hmm. they're not living in the world that we're living in. They're living in just a total world of prophecy. Everything is to be understood through the book of Daniel and this one paragraph of Isaiah where he indicates this, that, and the other, and it's all this intricate stuff, mm -hmm. you know? So then when, when this all happens, as Tabor says, Koresh has to adopt his religion to kind of accommodate what's happened here. This isn't the prophecy. The prophecy was they were going to go to Israel. Mm -hmm. So now Babylon is coming. It must be because Satan wanted him to do and this and that. And now God wants to send the message. And I'm going to skip a lot of the seeds here so we can get to the horrible part. Eventually, this is how James Tabor and his partner, Philip Arnold, got through to Koresh. 
they went because these guys, they're probably the only people around who really understood this stuff in the context that Koresh was trying to get people to understand it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in fact, they complain. They go, these guys, they're in good faith. They're good guys and everything. They're real, re great religious scholars at Baylor. Mm -hmm. But they, as Tabor said, they weren't particular scholars in this part of Nahum and Daniel and Revelation and whatever that really... Mm -hmm. They didn't understand the puzzle pieces the way that Tabor and Arnold did. So Tabor and Arnold, and they're the guys at Baylor are the ones the cops are relying on. Mm -hmm. And the cops are completely disregard. This is Charles Manson and his cult. Again, they don't have a religion. They don't believe a word that they say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're criminal cop killers. That's all we need to know about them. So when they go, well, the book of Nabakabak or whatever the hell it is. They, they have they a cook is the one you're talking about, yeah. They're not, they don't pay it any more mind than I do, mm -hmm. right? worse because I would at least in their situation I would have tried to understand right. but they're like whatever screw you guys you right, right. so anyway Tabor and Arnold go on the radio that, and on this show there's a guy named Ron Engelman and he was heroic he was a radio show out of Dallas and he immediately sided with the British Davidians the way that they were raided he said I don't care who they are they got constitutional rights and all that so he was there should be songs about that guy I don't know I actually meant to do a little bit more research on him for the thing, and it was just a tangent. I didn't have time to go down. I really don't know much about the guy. But anyway, he hosted Tabor and Arnold on there, and they said to the Davidians, or, anyway, it's complicated, but they, essentially they offered to the Davidians an interpretation of this stuff, where they said essentially, hey, look, David, it says here that you're supposed to tell your story for a season during this period of time and whatever. And our interpretation of that is you have to live. Mm -hmm. You've only just become famous. You got what, a couple hundred followers in the world? You now, your name is on the tongue of every man on this planet. Everyone is listening now. Mm -hmm. Everyone with ears to hear is listening now. You can't die now. You got to... Get your interpretation out there while you have a chance. That's why God puts you here. So they're not like, or isn't that what you think, right? They're not patronizing the guy. Right, right. But they're just going like, look, man, I think you might have overlooked this passage here, bro. Mm -hmm. Well, that got to Koresh. Mm -hmm. And he was like, man, you're right. And then guess what? God talked to him again. And God told him to write the seven seals for the first time. Mm -hmm. And he started working on it. And the deal was struck on April the 14th. He had his assistant, Ruth. I don't want to get her last name wrong. I'm sorry. I might get something wrong. I'm so sorry. Anyway, he has his assistant with the dictaphone belt to record and transcribe. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how that works, but anyway, to help transcribe the thing. And he was working on it and he had, I believe, finished the first seal. And the plan was and on the night of the 18th. And the plan was to send it out the next day as a show of good faith. That, look, we're working on the seals. As Chaber said, the first seal is the longest one. Mm -hmm. And on the night of the 18th, the negotiator told them, there's no time limit. We know how you guys are with time limits and the pressure and all that. Don't worry. You keep up the good faith and keep up the good work. Mm -hmm. And we're all good here. And the Davidians were like, word up. After the fire, this woman, Ruth, Oh, Ruth Riddle, Ruth Riddle, Jimmy Riddle's, I believe, mother. She escaped the fire and brought the disc with her. I don't know if it was a little floppy disc or what. Mm -hmm. Brought the disc out. 
And so we have that. We have David Koresh's interpretation of the first seal. It's mm-hmm. published. Dave, uh, James Tabor published it. Mm-hmm. And what he also found on the disc, which the FBI must have seen too, because they had it, was they had an outline of the entire seven seals. And Koresh had said to her, okay, here we're going to insert Isaiah 25, and here we're going to put in Nahum 23, and whatever. Mm-hmm. He already, because they were like in a hurry. Right, right, right. He was saying, here we're going to paste in this, here we're going to paste in this, here we're going to paste in this, and then he's going to fill in all the gaps and explain what right, they're right. trying to tell you and whatever. He had the whole thing planned out. He was doing it. Mm-hmm. The good faith was presented. They were going to send it out the next morning. The raid started at 6 o'clock in the morning the next morning. Okay, let, and let, let so, me, before we get into the raid, and again, I'm looking at the clock, we got to go fast, but I don't want to skip over, there was something about the mooning, which you guys brought yeah, up, okay. like, so it, for sure, the F, the agent now, if it was the FBI or if it was other people that were there, yeah, but were, you know, mooning them, taunting them, and then maybe, and one of your guests said even they were doing the front too, not just their back yeah, sides, and so yeah, and, you guys made the point that well, at that point, you could see why they would be afraid to send their kids out to those guys. And then number two, they're certainly not afraid of getting shot if they're mooning them. You know what I mean? Like if right. these are crazy gun riddled nut job Good separatists, point. then yeah. why would you be going up and to get close enough for them to see your butt? Like that seems right. kind of a risky thing to do. Yeah. And so listen, and I'm sorry I skipped this. It's just, I'm glad you brought this up because... It, it illustrates what is a major theme of this story. It's very important mm-hmm. not to give like all hero status to the negotiators. Right. But there was a real division between the efforts of the negotiators and the hostage rescue team guys. Again, soldiers driving around with tanks here. Mm-hmm. Those guys, man, they just wanted to fight. Those are the guys who are mooning the people. Mm-hmm. And as you say showing the front too and insulting them in every way, driving tanks back and forth across the shallow graves of the Davidians who had been killed mm-hmm. on the day of the first raid. I imagine that you bury your brother out there and they're driving a tank back and forth over his grave, mm-hmm. you know? And the people inside this building, these are women in very long denim skirts who are, you know what I mean? Like these are mm-hmm. pious people. They're b- real believing people. Mm-hmm. They're not part of our culture of just, the mm-hmm. ugly degeneracy of American R-rated everything or whatever. Mm-hmm. They really were the kind of people where if you said the B word, they would be like, ah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they're looking out there and they see the chariots of Babylon right. being run by a bunch of demon spawn out there. You want me to send my kids out to these people? Yeah. And then right? another example was Koresh's grandmother showed up. Right. And she had raised him. She right. was essentially his mother. So his mother figure, but technically grandma. And so that would That's be right. a great opportunity if the whole point was, hey, let's end this thing. They might say to her, okay, here, we're going to give you the phone or give you the megaphone or whatever. And, you know, just how about get them to send 10 of the kids out or something. You know what I mean? Like yep. that's the way you I normally think. expect these things to go. But that's not what happened, is it? <laughs> right. No, they just told her to go to hell. They told her to get out of there. And we hope you told them goodbye. They didn't even let her get past the line at all, anywhere near it. I just think, you know, and again, well, not again, I don't think we said this yet. Anyone who ever watched a Sam Jackson movie knows what a negotiator is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. The negotiator is supposed to play good cop. 
the negotiator is supposed to be like, man, do you guys need cigarettes? Or like, what can we do to where like you and me could get on the same page and figure out how we're going to satisfy your concerns and make sure nobody else gets hurt, buddy? That's, isn't that the job? Everybody knows that that's the job. Not to be the accomplice for the tactical guys, to excuse the violence of the tactical guys. Any, just, again, take all of the specifics out and just go, here's, you got this kind of weird religious cult that's holed up and the leader's mom comes to town to try to talk him down. What should happen in the next scene? Well, she should be on the phone with him. Exactly, next, exactly. What are we talking about? They brief her what to say and what right, not right, to say. Right. And then she gets on the phone. What are we talking about here? Yeah. They told her, go to hell. We told, we hope you told them goodbye. Sincerely, last time you talk, because you're never going to see him again, lady, because we're about to kill him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have time to play. But again, if you folks, if you go listen to the longer one, there's also a thing too where the negotiators talk, I don't know if it's Steve Snyder, but saying, yeah, sorry, the people in charge here, their patience has worn thin or something like that where it's clear that the negotiators are not in charge of the scene. Like they're- You know what? It's not that long of a okay. clip, Bob. You got Let it? me play it. Okay, sure. Yeah. Steve? Yeah. There's been a change. The tactical people have changed the situation and for security reasons and for safety reasons, no one is now authorized to come out of there for any reason. And what they're telling me is that if anybody does, they are going to be dealt with in such a fashion that the people will have to um, retreat back to the compound. What? I, I, I'm not, I'm missing, I guess, what you're saying. Are you saying, make it as plain as possible. The patience of the bosses is no longer where it was earlier. Okay, I'm about ready to listen to me now, Henry. I don't really give about your bosses. When you tell me one thing or you tell us that is okay, and this Bradley comes up and says something contrary to what you are, you tell your bosses to get their butts together. Do you hear me? As long as we're playing audio, let me play one more thing from the siege here before we get to the raid and the final raid and all that, Bob. And... This is probably not for young ones who might be listening to this. It's really ugly, but people should know this was part of it, that they played, first of all, they got military searchlights to shine in the windows of the house at all hours of the night. And they played originally just really annoying, horrible music, achy, breaky heart by Billy Ray Cyrus. And these boots are made for walking. Did you realize that was a federal gun control cop anthem. These boots are made for walking and that's just what they'll do by Nancy Sinatra and all of that. And then they escalated it to playing at full volume up to 11, proverbially spinal tap style at all hours of the night for a house full of children, the sounds of animals being slaughtered, rabbits and horses and dogs. <laughs> That's your enemy. Yeah. So again, just to make sure people are understanding if they're like, well, but gee, if they got these militants, like this is not an Al-Qaeda bunker that's being surrounded by Marines. The whole ostensible story being told to the world was 
there's a bunch of kids in there that we're trying to rescue. And so if that's what you're doing, it seems odd that you would be using these tactics. Okay. No, geez, we're just trying to get the mothers to protect their children by turning them over to us. Yeah. The people torturing them. Yeah. Okay. Can you quickly explain? So this is something that I, I definitely learned. I had filed away. Wow, Janet Reno is really a monster. She was in charge of all this. And then she had the audacity to say, yeah, I take full responsibility. And ha, and I don't do anything. Can you explain actually that it's being a bit unfair, Janet Reno? Yeah. And look, I'm the kind of guy, I think responsibility is a quality and not a quantity. And so you can divvy it up however the hell you want. Mm -hmm. And so this is all Bill Clinton's responsibility. Every bit of it. Mm -hmm. Every bit of it. He was the president of the United States mm -hmm. from day one all the way through. She was the attorney general for, I think, about a month. Uh, she was sworn in in the middle of the siege. Mm -hmm. It was relatively new. She was Clinton's third choice. Mm -hmm. The first two had not paid income taxes on their nannies. Mm -hmm. And so he went with his third choice, Janet Reno, from Florida. And the ATF guys, I mean, essentially, I think Dan and Dan Gifford and Dave Hardy both do a real good job of explaining the context here that these cops are 12 feet tall. And she's this little lady from out of town. This is their town, mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., and she's not really the boss of them, mm -hmm. really. They're telling her, this is what we're going to do, lady, okay? Mm -hmm. And they're putting her in a position where, like, who is she to stand in their way of doing the right thing here? And they just lied to her. Now, I'm not excusing what she did because I still blame her because, well, I'll get to it, but the point is, the, they lied to her. Those lies weren't good enough that they would have satisfied me in that situation or that they would have satisfied you in that situation to approve what she did approve. So it was still wrong for her to do what she did mm -hmm. and to give the okay. But they told her that he was beating babies. Mm -hmm. Babies means like under 11 months old, right? Yeah. Babies. Yeah, he's fighting them, right? He's kicking their asses in there. He's torturing little babies. You can't beat a baby without, like, possibly killing it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, any time you beat a baby, that's attempted murder at least, right? You can't. And now, if she won't let them go rescue the babies, she's authorizing the continued beating of babies. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Lady, you're going to let this guy continue beating these children, this horrible thing? And this was new to me, was that they admitted within five days days that that was a lie. They're like, oh yeah, no, we didn't have any evidence. The guy could barely scrape himself up off the floor. He'd been shot. Mm -hmm. He wasn't beating anyone. Yeah, well, you know, we just told her that. They admitted it. Mm -hmm. okay. Right away. And so, she, and then they told her that, look, the gas attack, we're just going to insert a little bitty old bit of gas. It's irritating, but not dangerous. And it's going to coax those people. They're going to have to give up and come out now. Mm -hmm. And don't worry, it's safe for children. Won't lead to any permanent damage, right? Like Paul Wolfowitz, or not Wolfowitz. I guess he was involved in this a little bit, but uh, Addington and Haynes and, the, and all the torture memos were like, well, as long as there's no permanent damage or organ failure, then it's uh, all right, right, right to beat the hell, you know. Um, and in fact, what had happened was, is, as I believe it's Gifford talks about, no, 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 it's Hardy. It talks about in his book that the example they had of a child being exposed to this CS powder, it's not really tear gas. It's this CS powder mixed in methylene chloride 
this kid had been exposed to it in a raid, and I believe it was like a 10-year-old. And, oh, no permanent damage? Well, he almost died. He was like in the ICU in critical condition, had terrible permanent lung scarring and damage and all this. They saved his life. But, man, you're talking about this stuff is banned by the Geneva Conventions for use in international warfare, Bob, for real. Mm -hmm. It was Bill Clinton that signed that chemical convention right before they did this. Yeah, so they, what the plan was that Janet Reno approved, but we agree that she was kind of forced. It's sort of like Kennedy with the Bay of Pigs or something. Yeah. Fair analogy, yeah. And by the way, I just screwed up. I said Republican Congress. That's not right. They didn't come until later. It was the Democratic Congress of Bill Clinton that had signed the Chemical okay. Weapons Convention. More. So what she did approve, what the plan was, is, hey, we're going to put in a little bit of this get just to flush them out. We got to get them out of there. This is Yeah. Because we got to stop this ongoing child abuse. And then, and then we'll just arrest everybody and save the kids. And she was, okay, yeah. And then yeah. we're going to have tanks on the scene, what, to punch the hole in the wall because we obviously can't yeah, guys walk it, up because they get yeah. shot. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, yeah, exactly. And then that was the one footnote in the plan was, oh, by the way, if we claim that the Branch Davidians fire a single shot at us, all the rules are off and we can escalate to plan B, which is dump everything we've got in there. Okay. Which is exactly what they did from the beginning of the thing. There okay. was no poking holes. And so she did authorize that, like, she technically signed off on the fact that they said, and now when we go to do this, of course, if they start shooting at us, then it's a war zone and we got to untie our hands, right? And she said, okay. Yep. Okay. And then she said, well, look, I take full responsibility, but then didn't resign. We're right so after the, the fact. Movie? Yeah, right. I remember I even have a clip somewhere of Ted Koppel going, well, what in the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just, yeah. So look, the gas attack. So you might ask, like, well, why didn't it work? Yeah, um, I, I did want to ask you that. Yeah. The, the men had, and the men and women had gas masks, and the children were all huddled, and some of the women were all huddled in the one concrete room, the pantry, really, mm -hmm. which doubled as their storm shelter, which the government, of course, called the bunker, the mm -hmm. one concrete room in the house there, and. They had immediately, you know, at the very north end of the building, there were two buried school buses that were also, you know, they're meant to be storm shelters. Mm -hmm. And there was a trap door from the north end of the building, climbed down a little ladder into the buried school buses there. And that would have been a great escape route for anyone trying to escape. Well, the first thing that they did, Bob, was gas that area, six o'clock in the morning. And we know they used the military pyrotechnic rounds to gas that thing. And they continue gassing it all day. And then let me see, because this is, let me see if I have this, man. I may, I hope I didn't misplace this. I have a new clip. This is something that I just got that I got from Dave Hardy. And it's, it's in the thing toward the end. And I have the clip and it's, Dick Rogers, the commander of the hostage rescue team, on the radio. He's in a helicopter, I think. And he's on the radio with Jeff Jamar, the FBI special agent in charge. And he says something about the north end is open so the children can get out. Which is, again, not really true because they gassed that area. Mm -hmm. And I guess I continued to gas it. I believe I continued to gas it. But he says that north area is open so the children can get out. And then Jamar says... Hopefully nobody else. And this is actually during the fire. This is when the fire's already broken out. Yeah, it was this when they were trying to call in fire engines. You're right. It's the same clip. In the, that's the beginning of the conversation. And then later in the clip is, and I don't know, man. I'm such a cynic on this now. I think that 
I mean, who knows? I don't know. Dick Rogers, maybe he just knows he's being recorded and he's putting on an act. But he's telling Jamar, where the hell are the fire trucks, man? Mm-hmm. And Jamar's holding them back in the name of protecting them from Davidian gunfire while the house is burning down. Nobody's shooting anything. Oh, I have it here. Got it. SA-1, hey, one Go ahead, SA-1. All people focused on the bus area for the kids. Is that what we're doing? That's what we're trying to do. Nowhere else, I hope. You hear that? Yeah, yeah. Keep it open for the kids. Yeah, that's what it's trying to do. No one else, I hope. And I'm looking, I'm looking at the video of this. It's from the FLIR. It's audio from the FLIR track. And I'm looking at the house breaking into flames as they're saying this. Mm-hmm. The house is on fire, Bob, as they're saying this. These guys are murderers, man. They're murderers. Okay, so tell me, I know there's different hypotheses, but and we're not going to hold it to this, and I realize that there's caveats. You're not saying you'd bet your whole life this happened or you're absent, but if you had to guess... What was the actual, from the get-go, you think they wanted to burn that place down because there was too much evidence from the February 28th raid that was incriminating the ATF? Yeah, but look, I can always speculate that, uh-huh. so don't worry about that. Okay. Forget that. I mean, the reality is that they gas the people with lethal doses of gas, and then they machine gun them. And this is, you can do this in either order if you want to do the fire of the machine guns, but in chronological order, they were machine gunning the people to death for more than an hour, I believe, before the fire ever broke out from the back of the house. Mm-hmm. And certainly for, what, half an hour or something. I don't know. I guess I should follow up with Dave Hardy on that. But there's plenty of footage of the cops in the back of the house from their own plane flying overhead with their forward-looking infrared. That's the acronym FLIR. Yep. It's their own plane, and you can plainly see it. I don't even want to argue about it. I already won the argument about it. You see men get out of the back of the tanks or the Bradleys and shoot their fully automatic rifles, mostly on three-shot bursts, into the house over and over and over again. And there they are doing their infantry maneuvers, tactics, and driving the tank all the way into the building and following it, firing from behind its cover and all the rest. And then the fire breaks out. Mm-hmm. So you have gas plus machine guns, plus fire. That's a massacre, man. That's not a cult gas suicide. Gas that was banned in like, international warfare. That's right. A, ga- uh, a gas banned by the Geneva And that there's horrible images else. of like the kids that didn't have gas masks and like some of them got the gas and like it made their spine get all... Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up. It's a very important and crucial point. When you burn methylene chloride mixed with the CS powder... Maybe it's just the methylene chloride. When you burn it, you get, which the CS was mixed with. When you burn it, you get hydrogen cyanide, which is gas chamber gas. And they make the point in rules of engagement, and it's correct and, and verified. And in fact, I got it from, I went looking around this. I got in a fight with some jerk on Twitter one time years ago who said that I was all wet for claiming this. And that, yeah, I was citing the rules of engagement, but the rules engagement is full of crap and it's all wrong, he said. But nope, I got it from the CDC's website. It's my footnote now. Mm-hmm. That they say that hydrogen cyanide causes spas- muscle spasms so harsh that it can break bones and particularly cause muscle seizures that cause spines to break from arching backwards. 
And we have pictures of the burnt corpse of a little girl whose spine is twisted and bent backwards all the way like that from almost certainly from inhaling that hydrogen cyanide. Okay. And the, the guy says, the expert from, I think, DuPont says in the film, well, this is why in the gas chamber they tie the guy down. Mm-hmm so that his body doesn't go into such convulsions that his elbows snap and his spine snaps and they poison him to death. And then, so the witnesses don't have to see that. And I don't know, I think that's the part that got me in a fight with the guy on Twitter where he was like, blah, blah, I don't know. But I do have from, and I, and Gifford has from all the autopsies and the toxicology reports where at least some of the bodies, according to the coroner, had lethal doses mm-hmm. of hydrogen cyanide in their blood. And so again, the guys on the outside knew that kids didn't have gas masks and they put That's that right. stuff in there. So even yep. if... And here, in fact, let me play this short clip of Bob Ricks. He is... Later, he became the head of the Tulsa office and failed to prevent the Oklahoma City bombing that he could have prevented. But here's just a couple of clips for him. He was the spokesman for the FBI during the siege here. And here's him explaining their thinking and then ending with the clip here if I can get these in the right order, where he boasts about breaching that concrete room, okay. which they pretended to believe was Koresh's command center. When Koresh and his men were not there, it was all women and children. It was all, Bob, 100% women and children in that concrete room, hiding under blankets and towels, wet blankets and towels, trying to keep the poison gas off. So here's Bob Ricks. We believe that this thing had to be brought to a logical conclusion at some point. Our desire was to get them out to use non-lethal means in a systematic manner so that they would come before the bar and face justice. We did not want this to occur. At some point, we had to up the ante. He was continually fortifying. He was demanding and was seeking provocation to get into a shootout with us, which we were refusing to do. (laughs) I like that. Continually fortifying. Like what? He's forging steel inside right, the yeah. It's not like a, yeah, like a, not like the allies are airdropping stuff. <laughs> yeah. He keeps trying to provoke us into a firefight. Well, maybe quit driving a tank over his father-in-law's yeah. grave. How about did you think about that? Yeah. And then one more here. We knew that that, con- that protection was in there. We believe we finally were able to make entry into that compound and were able to insert gas inside that protective area. We put massive gas in there. Their gas mass by that time had to be, had to be failing. We thought that their instincts, uh, the motherly instincts would, would take place and that they would want their children out of that environment. It appears they don't care that much about their children, which is unfortunate. He's just saying right there, mm-hmm. that's like the minimalist explanation. Bob, they weren't trying to murder them. They clearly were just trying to torture the children to the point that their mothers wouldn't be able to stand it anymore and would finally give in and run out of the house with them. Yeah. That was the plan, he says. At some point, we had to up the ante. At some point, we had to bring this thing to a logical conclusion. But what does that mean? Those words don't even mean anything. The whole policy supposedly from day one, from the night of day one was, well, we're going to wait these kooks out. Right. They're kooks. And they say Babylon's coming to force the apocalyptic end on them. Well, we're going to prove them wrong by not doing that. That was what they said they were doing. Right. They waited seven weeks. So what's magic about seven weeks? I'll tell you what's magic about seven weeks. 
they had decided a few weeks, four, three, four or five weeks before that they're going to do this gas attack. But it took them a few weeks to get the tanks ready, mm -hmm. rigged up for the gas. And then there was something. Tanks were ready. We don't care if you're writing the seven seals. We have right. our battle plan and we have all our equipment lined up. We're going in the morning. And there was something too with the timing about Janet Reno was like at, a, at an event or something. Like they wanted this to go down when she wasn't like available. Well, I'm not sure if they had planned that. I'm not sure if they had planned that, but at least I think they were taking advantage of the fact that she was going to be out of the office. They were going to try to get this done while she was busy and not able to intervene or call any shots. And by the way, I have to play this too, man. We have time. How much time do we have? We got like 20 minutes. Oh, great. Okay, so I got to find here Bill Clinton. Now, David, the president said something about Waco in this, uh, in this interview, correct? That... Uh that seems to have some people interested. What's, what's that all about? Well, Brett, James Riotti was at the White House on April the 19th, 1993, the day that the Branch Davidian compound in Waco burned to the ground. Mr. Clinton, in talking about that day to investigators, suggested the tragic outcome wasn't his fault, though he does take some responsibility. Mr. Clinton testified, quote, I gave in to the people in the Justice Department who were pleading to go in early, and I felt personally responsible for what happened, and I still do. I made a terrible mistake. Officials at the Justice Department were caught by surprise by the president's statement. They say that uh, Attorney General Reno and Webster Hubble, a longtime Clinton friend who was in charge of the Waco uh, standoff coming to an end, uh, consulted with the president but didn't have to twist any arms. They say that they consulted with the president merely to apprise him of the situation uh, but not to get his permission. Uh, they suggest that Mr. Clinton's suggestion that uh, he gave in to the people who wanted to go in, go in early is simply not accurate. David, thank you very much. Coming up next, Bill Crystal on Dick Cheney. Be right back. <laughs> I want to I hear that piece too. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful, the yeah. ending there? So listen, so that's from 99. Bill Clinton's still the president. He's being deposed, as you heard there, in the case of James Riott. He's being sued, I think, by Judicial Watch. I should interview that Tom Fitton and ask him about this. I think this is where this comes from. So as you said, the whole story was, this is all Jana Reno's fault. As I said, well, it was really the FBI pulled rank on her more than anything, kind of made her do it in a way, not to let her off, but to blame them more, mm -hmm. really, right? Like she was telling them what to right. do. Well, it is a big dish. You're saying she was sworn in during the siege? Yes. So, yeah, I don't think that was on my radar before listening to your guys' show. Right. That's, I mean, that everyone knows you come and do a new job like that and something's in process. It would be hard for her to second guess all those military guys and say, no, I disagree. You know what I mean? Like, that just, and she's a woman too. That just, that wouldn't have flied. Yeah, if she would have had to have like a real insight of like, no, dude, this is my day to shine. That like, no, dude, we're not going to escalate this thing mm -hmm. against a house with kids in it. We're just not gonna. It's worse. It's the U.S. government. They got all the time and money in the right. world. They're not going anywhere. The governor of Texas is on their side. There's not a controversy here. What is the hurry? Mm -hmm. She could have said no, Bob. Yep. She really could have. Yep. Again, responsibility is a quality, so you can spread it around however you want. But see, so here's Bill Clinton says, you know what? No, it wasn't Janet Reno. I was the one who gave the go ahead. They came to me. So wait a minute. I got to rewind for a second. Who's James Riotti? James Riotti was Bill Clinton's Chinese intelligence connection. He's a Chinese owner of an Indonesian bank and who worked for Chinese intelligence and who paid hundreds of thousands of dollars into Bill Clinton's reelection campaign in 1996. And as a reward, his right-hand man, John Wong, got a job in the Commerce Department, where then Bill Clinton took the authority from DOD and state over three-stage rocket technology transfers to China and moved that authority to Commerce to John Wong's desk, 
where then he approved Loral and Hughes to sell all this three-stage rocket technology to China for their satellites and also their ability to nuke Austin, Texas, if it comes down to it. And so this was a huge scandal at the time. And you might remember, they said, oh, yeah, never mind James Riotti and John Wong. Look over here at Charlie Tree mm -hmm. and Johnny Chung and Wen Ho Lee. Well, these were some Chinese donors, but they weren't working for Chinese intelligence. And Wen Ho Lee, he was a loyal Taiwanese-American nuclear scientist at Los Alamos who didn't do anything at all. And they just gave him the straight-up Richard Jewell treatment and just framed him for giving this technology over when everybody knew that it was Bill Clinton himself who had taken this literal bribe for his own personal re-election campaign in order to put this Chinese intelligence agent in the Commerce Department in charge of doing this. So anyway, sorry. So Tom Fitton is suing him over this. I'm almost certain that's what this is. This deposition mm -hmm. is from a Judicial Watch lawsuit. And Clinton's, Clinton is sitting on the couch, Bob, watching the church burn with James Riotti. Mm -hmm. And he's going, yeah, see, these are Christians without a license. So that's what they get, right? That's the Chicom weight. They become more like us. We become more like them. It's great. So anyway, that's kind of a side issue, but it bugs me. Anyway, so he says he did it. And then, but the justice, he also says, I let them convince me. Mm -hmm. So they go, well, but that's not right. We didn't have to twist his arm. But also, he didn't give us the order at all. We were the ones who decided. Right. But yeah, it doesn't sound right. That's just kind of a weird, like, little side dispute there over how much they pressured him. Mm -hmm. The way they remember it, it wasn't hard at all. In fact, the way they remember it, they didn't even ask him. Yep. Sounds like they're still sticking to the previous story where they're supposed to be protecting him, and he forgot that cover story and is now going ahead and admitting his role. But then he's kind of blaming them in a way, as he would, of course, to diffuse responsibility away from himself. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, then he also just says, yeah, Always felt bad about that. Like, hey, what are you going to do, Bob? Mistakes were made. Yep. These things happen when yep. you're the president of the United States. You know? <laughs> okay. Let's jump ahead. We don't have too much time left here. Uh, to me, part of like how we just know that this is not an above board thing. It wasn't just, oh, wow, that got out of hand. That's not at all. We intend is afterward, did they literally use bleach? Yeah. Well, first of all, they held the fire trucks back. So they gassed the place. They mm -hmm. machine gunned the people. They burnt the place down. Well, I think you want to ask me about the origins of the fires, too. So the, there are different possibilities here. I can't swear to you, uh -huh. okay? Well, I can tell you some things I know to be true. I can't say exactly what we know happened. It's possible that a muscle flash from a Davidian's rifle could have started the fire. Mm -hmm. Or that proverbially a lantern could have been knocked over or something like that. There's extremely sketchy reports where Davidians supposedly take responsibility for the fire or knowing that someone else said it. Mm. But, and I'm sorry, I, we hash it out carefully in the, the Waco tragedy there. But essentially it's, this is comes from John Danforth's cover-up investigation from 1999, where I think he really takes Graham Craddock out of context mm -hmm. and twists his words to make it sound like the Davidians started the fire. I guess it is, you have to admit, it's within the realm of possibility that A or some small group of Davidians set the fire 
just because, as you would say, like logically, you can't 100% rule out that that happened mm. when it's a big place and a lot of people in there. But it's absolutely certain that there's nothing like a suicide pact mm -hmm. at all going on. We know that the FBI, the place was riddled with bugs, audio and video. They've never produced. And, you know, Bob Ricks, the same guy who says, yeah, we put massive gas in there, that room full of women and children he's talking about. That same guy went around saying, oh, yeah, we had audio of Koresh and Snyder ordering the mass suicide. And then Koresh tries to wimp out and run away and Schneider kills him and all this. Bull. They never produced the audio of any of that. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't they prove that Koresh ordered the fire if they had audio of Koresh ordering the fire? It's because yeah. he's a liar. That's why. And meanwhile, here's the deal. We got pyrotechnic flashbang grenades at all three origins of the fire. We got at least three, or is it four? I believe it, we have at least three military pyrotechnic gas rounds that they had fired in that were found at all three origins of the fire. The very southwest corner of the house would have been the far east kind of corner of the house in the gymnasium there, the southeast part of it, and then further up in the cafeteria area. And what happened was the heroic Dave Hardy and uh, Mike McNulty, the author and the director of Rules of Engagement, they harassed Bill Johnston the U.S. attorney enough. They got total bureaucratic thing. You could have written it. The Texas Rangers say, hey, we can't let you see the evidence because it's under the jurisdiction of the federal marshals. And then the federal marshals go, oh, it's under the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice goes, no, it's under the jurisdiction of the Texas Rangers. And the Texas Rangers goes, no, it's under the jurisdiction of not us. Mm -hmm. So you can't have it. Well, finally, the federal prosecutor said, no, enough. McNulty was persistent enough is what really happened. And him and Hardy, his lawyer, kicking their ass in court, you know. Mm -hmm. And I guess Johnston finally gave in and gave them access to the evidence lockers. And they went in and they found all these pyrotechnic rounds, these flashbang grenades and pyrotechnic tear gas rounds mislabeled as silencers in the evidence lockers, but with pictures showing at the where they were found in the rubble. Mm -hmm. So there is just, I... I Think every reason to believe that the cops set that fire and set it deliberately. Mm -hmm. You know, it's within the realm of possibility that there are other possibilities, but it is not possible that, oh, this was this uh, Jim Jones suicide pact and that all these people decided, yeah, we're all going to go to heaven and fire together today mm -hmm. with our kiddos too and all of that. There's just no reason to believe that that's true. The only indications of that are just claims from cops, period. Right, There's right. no other reason to believe that at all. Okay. All right. And then... And then what was your question? I was asking about bleach. Yeah, then they bleached the crime scene, like Literally, Bob. you're just using that as a metaphor. Like, they're literally pouring bleach. There's, yeah. There's literally pictures of them with bottles and bottles and bottles of Clorox bleach pouring it all around the crime scene, man. And that's not because they're afraid someone's going to get an infection. That's not why they're doing that. Jeez, I wouldn't think there's, it's a place pretty sterile. Yeah. After burning at a few thousand degrees there. Okay. So there's that. Then the two things left here that I want to hit and we've got, I don't know, eight minutes or so on my end. If you... Can we do okay. it? And we'll, if you could just explain it and like as a teaser for why people should go watch the thing. Okay. The Fort Hood, can you explain with yep. that, that and the trial? And we, again, we got like eight right. minutes or so. You use the time how you want to, but those are the two things. Yep. Just let people know okay. what happened with those two. 
Okay, so first of all, the trial. In 1995, they were tried, or 1994, they were tried in San Antonio, and they were acquitted of murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Now, the survivors, I'm sorry, was like, well, I don't know, what, 10 or 12 of them or 15 of them or something, some of whom who would come out early. Paul Fatta, who wasn't even there that day because he was at the gun show in Austin, was put in there with the rest of them. And was it six, I believe, who had survived the fire, including David Thibodeau and Ruth Riddle and a few others. And so they were charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And the conspiracy was that they believed in this apocalyptic religion that says that they were guaranteed to one day come into conflict with the forces of Babylon, which again, wasn't even the prophecy. Mm -hmm. And that necessitated them essentially luring the ATF into this ambush and coming into conflict with the government. And the jury just thought that was a bunch of crap. Not on your life, not in Texas, and not in America. Mm -hmm. Forget that. And then on the murder, they found that the Davidians fired in self-defense. And the law in Texas, and I'm not sure if this is still the law here or if this is the law or how specific the law is mm -hmm. about this, but Dick DeGaron explains in the movie that I think he's saying it's explicit in Texas law that even if one is a law enforcement officer, if they initiate unreasonable, deadly force against someone, that that person has the right to defend their life. Mm -hmm. That just because someone's a cop doesn't mean you have to surrender to them murdering you. And under the law, they do have the right to aggress against you. They do have the right to throw you on the ground and put their cuffs on you and you have to submit to their will and face the judge later is supposed to be the process, right? They have the right to just blow your head off and right. you don't have an obligation to lay down and let them blow your head off. Mm -hmm. And so the jury found that the cops fired first and the Branch Davidians fired in self-defense and that's it. Ah, loophole. They compromised. There are a couple of thin blue line types on the jury, two to 10, who insisted that no way are we letting these people skate on everything. This is just crazy. I am just beside right, myself. Right, because there's four dead ATF officers. And, right, okay. That's right. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, and this is an important point. None of them were charged with arson or mass murder of the kids or any offense firing on the cops or any offense from April 19th. They didn't want to talk about what happened right. on April 19th. They could have come up with all kinds of charges for the Davidians for what happened on April 19th if any of their lies about them were true, Bob. But they didn't do that. They only charged them with February 28th offenses here from mm. the original day of defending themselves on the ATF raid. And so what happened was there was a third charge using a firearm during the commission of a felony. Well, so they compromised, and the jury found a few of them guilty of that. I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact number anymore. Well, the judge came back and said, well, that totally is inconsistent, and threw it out. He said, how can you find them guilty of using a firearm in the commission of a felony if you find that they didn't commit the felony? Right. So that's it. But then he came back off after the weekend and a round of golf or a couple of phone calls or just thinking it through. And in fact, actually, I learned during this, the prosecution made the case in court mm -hmm. that, oh, whatever, judge, there's all kinds of precedent for upholding inconsistent verdicts. And by the way, if they say that the Davidians used a firearm in the commission of a felony, what felony? This killing the cops. We all know that. Mm -hmm. And the judge said, I like your reasoning, prosecutor. That's right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to up, I'm going to reinstate the conviction that I just threw out and I'm going to sentence you as though you were convicted of murder. 
So everybody gets 15 years, which is the maximum that he could give them on the firearms charge. And the jury were beside themselves. Are you kidding me? The forewoman was just, our, Sarah Bain, I believe was her name, wrote letters to the Davidians begging forgiveness. They thought they were going to get a slap on a wrist, a fine and time served. Are you kidding? Mm -hmm. And they got 15 years. In fact, the Supreme Court, Bob, actually commuted some of those sentences and said that you can't do that. Mm -hmm. on the way that the judge, and they brought up again the bogus drug connection in order to enhance all these charges. Paul Fatta did 12 years. He wasn't this even there. Was any crime of any offense. He didn't do anything to anyone at all. Yeah, he did 12 years. Make sure people, this is the guy that was like going to the gun show. He wasn't even yeah, there. He was here in Austin. He wasn't he was here even in there. <laughs> and he did 12 years. He did 12 years because of some, the drug enhancement on the gun trafficking charges and all this BS. Again, look, right-wingers, if you're for the war on drugs, you got to understand, this is the war on guns. It's the same reason you would oppose a war on guns. It's the same reason to oppose a war on drugs. So all you do is create a black market and turn the market over to violence and give license to a bunch of cops to run roughshod over your rights. That's it. And then for people who lean left, who want to ban guns, well, look at how well that works with drugs. They outlaw drugs, and it means that they can ask Ann Richards and they can use Huey helicopters left over from Vietnam to attack your church. Mm -hmm. And then, but what? On a firearms warrant to enforce the gun laws that you want to see enforced on people. Left-wingers, right-wingers, this is what the war on guns and the war on drugs looks like in real life, okay? 86 people burned to death. Five minutes, can you talk about okay. the Fort Hood up. thing? Because the government proved they didn't fire. And they have fleer to, they even did a reenactment, Scott. So there, boom, case closed. Okay, Bob, so what happened was, is Dave Hardy was the lawyer who helped Mike McNulty get access to those evidence lockers. And they had found all these pyrotechnic military tear gas rounds. And... They proved it and put that in the movie Waco, A New Revelation, the sequel. They actually had military rounds in the first one, but that didn't make the impact. But for whatever reason, when it was in the sequel, they found two more and found all these pictures of them on the ground and everything. So that caused a scandal. And Reno appointed the former Republican senator from Missouri, John Danforth, who was, you know, mm -hmm. very center-right, obviously cover-up senator, was his only job to come in and whitewash the thing. They held a big blue ribbon commission type independent so-called investigation, special counsel. I guess it wasn't a panel. It was a special counsel investigation. And then, of course, they found that it was all good and no big deal. And in fact, those military rounds, sure, they fired some military rounds, but they landed in a puddle of water at six o'clock in the morning and had nothing to do with the fire. So it has nothing to do with anything, which mm -hmm. that much was true. But that's just a limited hangout that that was enough to get the investigation going. I mean, that wasn't all the military rounds that they found, nor did it account for the flashbang grenade shells that they found there at the origins of the fire either. Mm -hmm. So by excluding that question, he just went, oh yeah, it's really dangerous in a puddle of water hours before the fire guy and then gets to pretend and whitewash it. But then another thing that they covered was, well, I think they just denied that Delta Force did anything. Yeah, they were there, but Delta Force didn't do anything. Well, meanwhile, there's testimony from CIA and Special Forces officers that, yeah, they were too there and involved in the firefight. And, and then they did a recreation at Fort Hood to try to debunk the FLIR. That's a forward-looking infrared. Again, it was attached to the FBI's own plane, flying circles mm -hmm. overhead. 
And you can see for an extended period of time before the fire ever breaks out, they're shooting the people. Well, so it looks like images of bursts of some heat. It's infrared, so it's heat signature. Right. And so a normal person time, watching it, like, clearly the FBI guy, there are firing and the government's position was no, yeah, that's not gunfire. And look, you would have to be a liar or a fool to say that those are not muzzle flashes from rifles. Now, in many cases, it's not clear. You can't see their well camouflage. Their bodies are essentially the same heat as their surroundings, so they're difficult mm -hmm. to make out the men. But you can clearly see muzzle flashes and the pattern of the flashes and so forth. And then in numerous cases, you can see them get out of the tank, black dots with right. arms and legs and heads. Uh, at least they're not just round objects. Like they is, are. Scott, is that men. stuff on YouTube? Like, would I be able to expose, yeah. insert some of that? Okay, we'll, not, we'll try it, folks. Yeah. We'll try I mean, to. Waco A New Revelation has it. And the, the okay. footage in A New Revelation is better than in rules of engagement. Now, once YouTube's mm. done crunching it down and all that, I'm not exactly... I, yeah, I just mean if the viewer wants to get a rough idea of what we're talking yeah. about, so they understand. Okay, so, but now the government's job at this Fort Hood thing was to debunk and say, oh no, even though that looks like it's muzzle flash, it's actually not right. because we know the government didn't fire. And then we know that they just rigged the test. So, and this was all in the local news at the time. It wasn't a secret. They couldn't keep it a secret or I don't know if they tried to or cared, you know, they didn't think anybody mm. cared. So this was just the story all along. Everybody knows that they took a water truck and which if you think a truck with a big tank of water that it sprays out, it has the one purpose mm -hmm. is spraying down dirt to keep dust mm -hmm. down. Right. So this is obviously for the purpose of limiting the muzzle flash by spraying down all the dirt. Well, it wasn't a rainy day that day where the mm -hmm. ground was all wet. It was a windy dry day and there was just, dust yeah, let me just make there. sure I, the folks at home. So the government's going to recreate the, you know, allegedly do a test run to show right. we're going to have guys fire and watch the FLIR, same FLIR right. camera. And then they change all pick the up muzzle flash. So yeah. that means whatever we're seeing from that footage from that fateful day must not be muzzle flash. Right. So that's what they're trying to do here. And Scott's saying, number one, they sprayed everything down with water, yeah. which was and not then they true gave at the time. Instead of having M4 rifles, which is like a AR-15 carbine, which is like a smaller version of an AR, but or a small version of an M16, really, is what I mean to say, is what the guys had in Iraq. It's like, if you picture, like, the rifle that you think of from Vietnam, the M16 from the Vietnam War movies mm -hmm. and whatever, it's kind of a smaller version of that, the M4, and with, I believe, a short 14-inch barrel or something, I believe it was. And then for the test at Fort Hood, they had M16s with 20-inch barrels. And at Waco, they had... Plain old federal brand ammunition, which I forget, 223 or 556, whichever, almost same thing. But at the Fort Hood test, they had special military ammunition with flash suppression, suppressing gunpowder, different ammunition, deliberately. And that's because in wartime, you don't want to give away your position every time you fire. Like that's right. the purpose of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And remember now, this is the purpose. The FLIR was developed for finding gunfire on the ground. <laughs> this is what right. it's, you know, made to do for one thing. So it was obvious that they had done the test. They had flown a plane around Fort Hood until they could rig the conditions enough to make sure you can't see the flashes. And then they held their okay. big public test. So, right. And it right. flunked, of course. So they have guys firing guns and the FLIR things fly. say, so see, we don't see muzzle flash. That's right. After they used water to suppress the dust, even though at Waco right. that day, there's tanks going around, there's dust everywhere. And here we and can play use, up, uh, some clips that I play a few yeah. more, but we can play one or two here of Barbara Grant, 
who is a FLIR expert and the expert's expert, highest ranking uh, mm -hmm. video uh, imagery expert and infrared imagery expert in the country, who did this thing called When the Government Lied about Waco, which people can watch on Vimeo for three bucks. But I have a couple of clips here where she explains how we know for a fact these are not reflections of sunlight, which they could be in some limited circumstances, but not in these ones. And she's, she explains very clearly why that's not from her documentary. And also I have a mm. couple of clips. I'm not sure which all, which ones are which here. A couple of these come from my interview of her. Okay. When we see the multiple repetitive flashes, I've provided a number of instances of those in the video. We're looking at gunfire gunfire directed toward the building. Now, I will say I'm not a weapons expert, so I don't have uh, detailed knowledge on the weapons types, but uh, it's definitely weapons fire. All right. But so why are you so sure then? Well, because I took a number of approaches to reach my conclusion. The first thing was to test muzzle flash. And the second thing was I followed... Um, I followed what Maurice Cox had done, looking at footage of the tape from a number of different angles and looking at the path uh, that a sun reflection would take in those particular images. And the path that a sun reflection would take was very different from what I was seeing in the images. And not only that, we are not talking about one sun reflection here, supposedly in the case of the multiple flashes, we're talking about several. So in order for the sun reflection hypothesis to work uh, as uh, the reason for the flashes, debris would have to be shiny, watered down, and precisely positioned for the aircraft's camera to observe them. So when I made my initial conclusion, uh, I said that uh, uh, these are likely to be from, uh, from weapons fire, these flashes, multiple repetitive ones. And as I studied the problem further, over time, uh, I became uh, completely convinced that that is what we're seeing. I delivered my initial result uh, really basically 20 years ago. If, if I'm talking about uh, one flash here and one flash there, I would be much more suspicious. But, you know, part of the interesting uh, situation is that uh, people that I knew of who analyzed the tape were not given the system parameters of the FLIR uh, by the investigation. They were just not given them. So that leads people, that leaves people to assume things like how much spatial detail can you see on the ground and how is the sensor operating? I would have to say that if if you uh, see these multiple flashes, you see them more than once, you see them in similar circumstances, it's hard to dismiss that as a scan artifact. It, that is true for uh, debris lying flat on flat ground. That is absolutely true. Now, we have a, a sequence, or I have a sequence uh, in the video, where someone is picking up uh, a piece of glass and flashing it toward the sensor. But, uh, and, and that's how you see it. So, 
you know, uh, unless that happens, you will not get multiple flashes if you are not at the appropriate angle. And I do have an example in there where we do see a sun reflection at an appropriate angle. So the real clincher to the argument of these multiple flashes uh, not being caused by sun reflections is the fact that they are multiple flashes. You have to have a four or five debris surfaces or pieces of debris lined up uh, at a very specific angle to uh, to generate something like that. But just so people understand the argument, because the government's saying, oh, those flashes you're seeing on the FLIR footage from that fateful day, that's not gunfire, because we've just proven in Fort Hood, gunfire wouldn't make those signature. Right. You know what that is? It's like metal and glass and stuff that's reflecting sunlight, and that's what the camera's picking up. Right. And so and that she's, she's going to show. That's just nonsense. Yeah, there could be one piece of debris right. at the exact right angle, maybe, but yeah. not this whole pattern we're seeing. And you also, you know, in Waco, the Rules of Engagement, and Waco, A New Revelation, there's interviews of Dr. Edward Allard, who invented this stuff. He was a civilian employee at the Pentagon at the Night Vision Laboratory, invented this stuff for the U.S. military. And he's saying, look, I'm telling you what's there. This isn't a debate. And then, you know, there was a slight debate because this guy, Carlos Gigliotti, who was hired to investigate for the House of Representatives, he said, oh, Allard is wrong. There's not 64 shots. I got 160 something here and whatever. Found many more. Said he even had image of bullets in flight. Had guys getting in and out of the tanks, going in and out of the house. Mm -hmm. And this is the real question is whether the men went Delta or HRD, whether they went in the house and shot these people point blank, which I think is highly likely, but not proven. But many of them were shot at close range. Well, oh, I'll just look at the clock here, Scott. Sure. I want to respect your time. So do you want to have any final remarks as we wrap up this, what was a mammoth Bob Murphy show episode? I guess so. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for devoting this much time and being mm -hmm. patient with me to kind of take us through the story here. I do hope that people will if they're interested, we'll listen to the full thing. David Hardy and and Dan Gifford are both just fantastic. And I've got James Tabor, Paul Fatta, David Thibodeau, Barbara Grant, Mike McNulty, the great James Bovard, our great associate at the Libertarian Institute and great libertarian journalist. And I forget who else, but it, tons of clips from the videos. And we just trudge through the entire story in super slow-mo and try to give it as comprehensive a take as we can to try to be an antidote to the current propaganda that they're putting out again here. So I appreciate you caring about this and giving me an opportunity to talk about this. And I guess I think it's important still after 30 years, I guess mostly because they're still lying about it. Mm -hmm. They know how important it is as a symbol, as what you just said, that the realization that Bill Hicks talked about this too in, in his great bits on rant and E minor, that, this is to prove that they will bust your house down. They will shoot you. They will burn you if they have to. The state will always win and you will always lose. And that is the message. And you're supposed to get it subtly, not so starkly that you rebel against it, Bob. You're supposed to go, geez, I better not mess with them. Not, hey, I better fight now before it's too late and we're all slaves and dead, you know, which is how so many of us reacted to that. And I think I still am reacting to that. So I would just encourage that you could think of it as even if you think of it like, oh, those people are dead. It's a long time ago. I don't know, whatever. Just look at it as like just a little controlled experiment in how evil the government can be and how gullible and how willing to right. indulge in their bloodlust the populace can be. 
and just. Yeah, you know, that's what I was going to say. Just to, as a case study, just to show they yeah, did get away with it. That's right. right. And look, they do it to mm-hmm. us over and over again. They do it to us. They did it right after this. They did it still to Saddam. They did it to Milosevic. They did it to Saddam again. And then Gaddafi and Assad, and they didn't even bother demonizing the Houthis to kill half a million of those poor Yemeni people. But the way they, you know, it's funny you even hear them say, like, they'll be naming countries in Europe and they'll go, well, you know, France, Germany, Poland, Putin, because you're not even allowed to say that Russia is a place that implies a lot of people are there. And I remember well how it was at the time. Koresh was Koresh, the evil dictator of that poor third world country. And the rest of the members were essentially invisible. They didn't really count. And they were at some point, they were so enslaved to him that their lives were forfeit now and they made people accept that and believe that and then they exterminated them and they got away with it they lied they had a sham trial they had an entire media from coast to coast on their side these people are not our security force they are our overlords our enemy the usurpers of power over us as rothbard writes in anatomy of the state there's none of this social contract we the people the people with the power the people who took it and this is how they enforce it so that's it. Oh, you can lay down all your red, white, and blue propaganda and look at the reality of who these people are. The ATF flag, the FBI flag flies over this country. Yes, well said. And thank you again, Scott. So folks, again, it's if it's tough, if you don't accept it, I really encourage you go with an open mind. So bobmurphyshow.com slash 285. I'll get the link to Scott's marathon production and plus other things too that's relevant. Thank you so much for your time, Scott, and everything else you've been doing. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Bob. Really appreciate it. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.